Hey, did you know this podcast has a Patreon? At patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and get early access to episodes and join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries. Get out there and do it. Thanks. Sometimes it's better to throw the pie in someone's face than eat it. Yeah. Like did you, you want... just make that up? Just make that up. <laughs> wow. Write that down. Hurry. Trademark. That's t-shirt yeah. now. <laughs> Sunday Scaries. Um, but yeah, hey, welcome to Sunday Scaries. It's a podcast about horror movies where each week we take the edge off by doing a deep dive into a specific scary movie and try to find connections between that film and other movies within the genre. And uh, Happy New Year, guys. This is the first or second or third-ish uh, episode we've uh, <laughs> recorded in 2023. Um, and it's the peak of our series on psychological horror. Uh, over the course of the last several episodes proper, we've been talking about mind-bending and brain-melting horror movies. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm hanging out with Jamario today. Good morning or evening. Or night. <laughs> uh, Andy is here to hang out with us as well. Hi. Awesome. Jamari is an amazing uh, director of photography, a cinematographer who works in the industry, uh, creating beautiful images uh, that you can go see on social media or in productions that he's worked on. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Andy is a friend of mine who is an r- amazing writer as well. Aww. She's worked with me and uh, Papa and some of other friends. Uh, we've edited and read each other's work a whole lot, and uh, she's nice enough to join and talk with us uh, about a movie today. Uh, so I think we're here to talk about a movie that uh, many have argued has been paper-crowned, the new scariest movie of all time and i know you guys are both huge fans what movie did we watch today hereditary i was really close. They were close yeah i recognize you from your mother what sometimes i swear i can feel them in the room she isn't gone She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. She wasn't altogether there. At the end. Damn it. Fucking I know. Uh, A24, That man. trailer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Man. There's something about watching trailers, too, that, like, I mean, trailers are their own. We've talked about this a couple of times. Like, it's its own art form in yeah. and of itself. Uh, and that one, too. Like, even I've watched this movie, like, three times in the past, like, 48, 30, you know, hours or whatever. Uh, but it's still, like, I think that puts you in the mindset <laughs> to, like, yes. of, yeah, of sure. just the experience and of seeing it for the first time. Oh, for sure. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, so, Hereditary. Uh, in the wake of Hermione mother's death uh annie lee played by tony collette and the rest of her family deal with the loss of their matriarch in different ways following a traumatic accident that occurs soon after the first funeral the family is plunged further into untenable depths of grief uh, and begins to experience supernatural occurrences that are either the product of an inherited disposition to mental illness or evidence of a darker and more horrifying family secret uh, I'm stoked to talk about this one with you guys. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I, can I comment on that trailer real quick? Yeah. Okay, first of all, how smart to put the clip of Tony Collette like grieving the loss of her daughter before she talks about her dead mom. Yeah. Like, oh, that makes the twist so much yeah. more gutting. Yeah. But 
there's a line in the trailer that is not in the movie and actually kind of spoils one of I the just twist. noticed that. Yeah. yeah. What? It's, uh, yeah, when she leans in and she's yes. like, I know you through your mother, yes. right? It's yes. like a line that was yeah. obviously cut that I uh, I haven't watched that trailer in a while, but yeah. like that's that's clearly one that they, they included originally, but uh, got removed. Um, so you guys have both seen this movie before, mm-hmm. obviously, right? Yeah. Once or twice. Uh, yeah. yeah several, right? <laughs> um, I was excited to have both of you on because I know you both love this movie uh, a whole lot. Uh, and it's, it's one of those that, man, like this, for a movie that came out, only just barely almost five years ago right in 2018 the level of reverence that people talk about not only hereditary as being sort of like it's so quickly inherited this new mantle of being our you know generation of horrors new scariest movie of all time the trailer itself Mm -hmm. calls it you know the exorcist for a new generation right um but then also ari aster like he he his debut film Sicko. what a fucking monster <laughs> let me tell you right now right it's something about uh was the johnson's uh something about the yes. johnson's i was just gonna say this isn't technically like his first movie. so afi mm-hmm. yeah he graduate him and powell uh the cinematographer graduated from afi and that was like his exit film i guess from afi right uh something about the johnson's or the secrets of the johnson's and what threw me for a loop, right? Because I started watching the short films after the trailer dropped for Hereditary. So I was mm. like, let me go find his. But go before find you his saw the movie. Before I saw the movie. Interesting. Okay. So I started, I watched, so there's uh, something about the Johnsons and then there's Munchhainen or something. Munchhausener. Hausener. Yeah. yeah. And then there's, I can't remember the one right now, but I sat down and watched all of them. I first started off with the Johnsons and, all right, so it's a black family. <laughs> So I'm like, all right. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these. <gasps> oh I, I didn't. I didn't watch oh, any of his short films. So I, I want to hear. Yeah, tell this? me about him. Should well, I, I mean, give this? me the give us the non-spoiler, just in case other people want to go. Okay, watch the only too. thing I would say about this, it's yeah. hard not to spoil. I was to say <laughs> it's a short it's film. A short. It's yeah. a short film. Yeah. But basically, something happens. He flips the cliche of um, abuse. Mm. Is the best way I can say. Okay. It. Wow. Yeah. But the then it happens. Narrative for sure. Yeah, and it happens in the whole kind of black space, which you know. Me looking at it from black eyes, like, oh, this white guy's directing something about, you know, mm. black family and blah, blah, blah. But how terrifying and utter, like, I watched that movie and I was like, I don't know if I can watch any more of these short films because it was just <laughs> such yeah. a, like, disgusting punch in my gut. And, you know, we, we have, like, this thread that we talk, you know, and every, whatever. And I just said, his family emotional trauma fuckery <laughs> is... Yeah very hard to deal with and very hard to kind of like come to a realization and like the Johnson's is, a, is an epitome of that. Mm. Uh, the other short film, Munch and I, what, can't even say it, but Munch- I think, is, I think it's Munchausen, right? Munchausen. Is, is it Munchausen? Like Munchausen by proxy? Oh, yeah. I think so. I assumed. Um, Cause I saw it in his like credit list, but I hadn't watched any, uh, I actually funny, like the only other work, well, obviously besides like Midsummer yeah. uh, and fresh, which uh, Pavel yeah, you know, yeah, did the yeah. DP was a DP for yeah. as well. Um, but I actually watched uh, one of Pavel's other short films mm. on um, the YouTube Altered. channel of altered. Yeah. yeah it was the uh, good night, darling yeah, one. Darling, I like yeah. that one a yeah, lot. Really yeah. Good. That was really cool. It was really good. Um, but yeah. And I, so you, I'm, you had seen this before too, right? It's like, like you said, the, the family drama in here is something's going on with his family. Yeah. Oh, for I sure. Is Ari Oster. Okay. Like, <laughs> I know. Can we call him like my guy? It's wild when you watch like, so the, the bonus features that are on the DVD for this, right? When you watch this motherfucker talk, you're like, you just look like the most normal. I mean, that's how fucking horror directors are, Facts. right? You look like the most normal put together dude. Yeah. Like what is like, how could, how could this possibly come out of you? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you listen to him talk and yeah. you're like, Oh, something's off. He 
knows. <laughs> Something's <laughs> a fight. Yeah. Something is amiss in this guy's fucking life. Check that man's basement. Uh, oh, shit. But yeah, it's like I said, we talk about uh, Ari Aster and this movie with reverence, uh, as well as, you know, because he's, he's done two movies and both of them have been absolute bangers. Um, we'll talk about the uh, uh, relative financial success of these movies for A24 and for the studio and the genre at large here, maybe at the end of the episode when we talk about its reception. Um, but it's not by accident. Like, we're obviously going to talk about this movie and what makes Hereditary so great. Um, but it's worth discussing Aster as well and just how much went into uh, just the pre-production for this movie. Um, from behind the behind-the-scenes featurette, like I said, in other interviews, everyone that has worked with Aster talks about how he is the most prepared director that, like, they've ever worked with. Wow. Um, he's somebody who has, like... Shotless. It's, yeah, we, we kind of have talked about various, like, directors' approaches through uh, the last, you know, several, a couple of dozen episodes and about how directing is, is a spectrum and there's lots of directors who do it in many different ways. And one of the ma- kind of fun things about, you know, talking about some of the greats when we talk about Scorsese or we talk about uh, Kubrick and stuff, you know, we put some of those directors on a pedestal imagining that they are this this idea where it's like they come into a project with a completely fully formed idea that they're just executing through the various tools. Like everybody's their paintbrush, right? They're mm. executing their perfect vision. And what's funny is when we go and talk about Scorsese or Kubrick or, you know, these directors who work with the medium, they, they, the directors who do things on the fly, they, they use the art form of directing to create a, a fascinating and beautiful final product. Um, but demystifying that and finding out that they're very much people who work with other people in the collaborative process is what yields these great movies is so interesting. But then you get to examples like this, where you have somebody like Ari Aster, who is like Wes Anderson, who is like somebody, you know, one, some, many of these other directors who, they he is the example of somebody who comes in and has everything f- so, so detailedly oriented and, mm-hmm. and lined out from the beginning. Um, his shot lists, his blocking, like you said, before we start recording, Jamar, yeah. you were talking about, um, he's somebody who is, you, you can tell, like, the the expert level of skill that he executes in blocking his shots and creating a visual language that is, it's clearly unique, but it just also tells the story in such a great way. Um, yeah, we mentioned briefly, so Pavel uh, Pogorzelski, right? Yep. Uh, so they both met, uh, like you said, at the American Film Institute. Uh, Ari tells us a funny story about how they met uh, on their first story, uh, first day of <laughs> AFI orientation where Ari Aster had taken, like, he had drank, like, two five-hour energies back-to-back no. and was, like, super yeah. cracked out going around Dangerous. shaking everybody's hand way too vigorously and <laughs> ta- very, very excitedly talking about movies and how Pavel uh, uh, kind of avoided him for, the you Sorry, know, man. for a while until uh, <laughs> they got to know each other, but they they, uh, they connected over the film uh, Come and See mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, sort of started building their relationship over film together. Um, I feel like then... that was the warning sign. <laughs> Come and See is the most depressing movie you can watch. I it's haven't watched it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's gorgeous. But um, yeah, you, you know, get in the blankets and kind of cuddle up for a while because it's one of those kind of films. It's just... It's one of the most gorgeous films out there, but still, mm-hmm. it's just really hard watch. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like, so talking again about the feature edit, about what Astra's perspective is on movie, on his movies and on this movie particularly, um, that is something that he says when he talks about like making a, a drama, but then, you know, the horror elements working their way into his movie. Um, he talks about he wanted to make a movie that sticks with people, right? Where he thinks the most, you know, horrifying elements of the movies are the things that you continue to think about and ruminate on after the movie is over. And boy, did he succeed. Well, that's uh, the thing about that's the thing about him, right? And what he did with this, with him focusing on the drama aspect of it, because it's subverting the genre of horror, you know? 
and the things that we're starting to see more often is that subversion of of, of the genre because you start seeing Jordan Peele with Nope and Get Out and then Zach with you know uh, Barbarian and mm. even with Korean films of so Bong Joon Ho and Parasite and Host and you know Park Won Chong and you know the Handmaiden Handmaiden and you know um, Old Boy. I mean mm. that's when you when they're able to do those that kind of subversion it like makes the film so much better because then they have the ability to even play with cliches. And that's something that he did with this film. And I mean, with even with the trailer, you're watching a trailer, you know, something's afoot when it comes to just Charlie, you know, is this child possessed? Is she the right. devil? Is she all this stuff? But then you find out later is actually this. It's, it's a, it's a much more complex tell he weaves. Right? Correct. It's like a family <laughs> drama yeah. with sprinkled in of like a haunted house. That was a poetry, guys. Like haunted house, occult, and then possession. Yeah. I mean, and but the drama part of it, and the that the how you feel just watching the drama part, you're tense the entire movie. Yes, you know what I'm saying. There's no, uh, there's none of that. You get that and at the beginning. Continues to crescendo. It, like yeah. you never get a break. Like no. yeah, from the moment Charlie's head gets cut off, it's like you're going 100 miles an hour mm-hmm. and there is no seatbelt. Yeah. 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 And particularly the way this movie is structured too, that last third of the movie, like the, uh, so, you know, of a two hour runtime, the first 90 minutes, you know, we spend building some of the most intense and visceral family drama that you will ever see on film, right? Absolutely. And then, like you said, it does accelerate towards the end. Um, something that you, that you were, as you were talking, one of the quotes from Ari Aster that popped into my mind uh, that he, that came out as of, uh, of his pitch of this mm-hmm. movie, um, the one sentence pitch of it for him he was talking about how it's a uh, it's a d- demonic possession movie from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb nice. uh, and it's wow. it's like dude <laughs> that's God a whole it. poem how are you so why are you this way <laughs> yeah. um, it's so yeah but because that is like so when you read contemporary interviews of this uh, movie from when it came out in June of 2018 um, yeah there is there is a lot of uh, to be said uh, about it's in its elevation of the genre and pushing the limits of horror um, and what that means for the genre as a whole. Uh, and that is something I'm really excited to talk about. Um, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what happens in this movie and then get into the reception of it at the end because that does also sort of wrap um, kind of a conversation that I think has been interesting to me in this series of episodes about what the idea the phenomenon of like elevated horror is and like where that comes from um, and what it kind of like what what that means for people who are fans of horror or outside the genre and how you kind of like, you know, interpret what that means for the industry and like how, how really it's being put into play. Um, but yeah, this movie is great. Like as far as, uh, as far as describing it to somebody who has never seen it, uh, I jokingly did say the other day, I was like, Oh yeah, it's a, it's a family drama. Uh, it is. And it is yes. because at its core, that is the, 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 the most important thing that I think is put at the forefront of this movie. Um, and it is enhanced and exacerbated by the horror that ensues. Um, but Ari Aster talks about in the, uh, you know, the interviews and the bonus features for this movie about how one of the things that he loves to do with horror and one of the things he thinks is most important about creating scares that really stick with you is making you care about the characters Absolutely. and how um, when you're invested in the experience and uh, of these characters and the things that happen to them, when something horrible happens or something traumatic, it feels even less like uh, like a spectacle or a shock and more like a betrayal. A um, you f- yeah. yeah, you feel it along with the characters mm-hmm. because you become so invested. Um, and to do that, you have to very intricately create um, a, a pathos and an emotional investment in them. Um, 
so just some other like kind of background details. Uh, Hereditary obviously is influenced by a lot of movies. Um, Ari Aster is a student of uh, the horror genre. Uh, some of the uh, movies that get singled out by uh, reviewers and critics include uh, Ordinary People from 1980, uh, The Ice Storm from 1997, uh, In the Bedroom from 2001, um, as well as like classic horror films like Rosemary's Baby from 1968, which I th- definitely think has a big influence Absolutely. on this. Yeah. Um, Don't Look Now from 1973 or The Oof. Innocence from 1961. Oof. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the script also resembles the a real life accident from 2004, which occurred in Marietta, Georgia, in which uh, John Kepper Hutchinson accidentally decapitated his yeah. childhood friend and passenger, uh, Frankie Brom. Um, so, on a telephone pole, after um, the latter had leaned his head out from the vehicle to relieve uh, yeah. symptoms it's of a little inebriate. insensitive well, to I'm, put I'm, that I'm in the story. Then <laughs> I'm from Georgia, so I mean that story spread. Yeah, I mean I'm was pretty young in that but I remember that story spreading it's around. It's gotta be something you talk so about. So when you saw this movie, did you immediately recognize it? You were like, oh no, that literally it, happened. It wasn't someone. until Travi hit me up and was like, hey, we're you know doing hereditary. I was like, oh, look into kind of what may influence this. And mm-hmm. I ran across and I thought, holy shit, that did happen. Wow. You had repressed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't think about it. I mean yeah. you're just like, yo you're like, oh man, that white boy lost his head. All right, whatever. <laughs> sounds sounds about white. Um <laughs> Yeah, the and like we talked about, so we, we were looking at that trailer a second ago, and uh, there is something about that trailer uh, being credited for keeping the uh, the secret of this movie, uh, kind of like one of the initial twists, um, very very well under wraps as well. The idea that you're you're killing off one of your main characters, right. you know, twenty five minutes into the movie, yeah. uh, people do compare this to uh, the phenomena that happened with Psycho, Psycho. Hitchcock right. Psycho back in nineteen sixty, yes. right? The idea of having a main character who starts off the movie, you know, as your main point of focus in the your inroad and perspective into the movie who then gets killed off in the corner of the film dies <laughs> yeah. off in the core of the film yeah. yeah um which i think is genius i think it, it yeah. definitely like it, it it sets up the stakes of a movie like this uh, in such a way that you do feel you feel immense terror and you feel yeah. unsafe as an For audience sure. member uh, sure. getting through it so um yeah let's talk about some of the scenes there's obviously so many scenes in this movie that uh, we need to talk about um so we'll do our best to spend some time on the most important ones without getting too bogged down um i try not to i've been trying to avoid going like scene by scene because it does we, we can't sit here talking it's for three hours it's too much um but I want to spend some time talking about some of the amazing technical aspects of Hereditary as well. And as we discuss these scenes, we'll kind of like obviously sprinkle that in um, because there's just some amazing shots and stuff in here as well. Um, so the film opens with uh, Annie, played by Tony Collette, giving a eulogy for her recently deceased mother. Um, when you watch this opening scene, we're immediately introduced to some prickly family dynamics uh, that will lay the groundwork for the intricate and intense familial drama that will follow. Uh, Annie explains in the opening scene that she had a strained relationship with her mother, um, that they made matriarch had secrets from her family and rituals all her own um the ghoulish nature of those surrounding the family is teased with that creepy smiling man who's at the funeral yes. right at the very beginning the brock looking dude uh, the wrestler dude God yeah, man, damn yeah, it that yeah, fucking yeah. doughy-faced creep dude <laughs> he stares at charlie during the funeral uh and the apathy of the family toward annie's mother too is presented kind of twofold um with charlie uh as an element of her character but it's sort of jarring at the beginning of this where she displays uh zero emotion it kind of becomes clear very early on that not only you know they laid the exposition pretty fat in there where mm-hmm. they, you know he steve comes in and checks on her and asks her if the chocolate bar she's eating has peanuts in it yeah. uh, but then also yes. we kind of get a feeling very quickly that maybe she's you know either on the spectrum or there's something about her that uh she she doesn't display emotion and it's later revealed annie talks to her about how she never cried even when she was born right. um and that she's always been sort of shut off but the uh, particular uh shot from this opening sequence that somebody in a like i think it was 
a New Yorker review of this that came out at the time, um, pointed out as being part of the uh, the uh, the story language of the movie is the, uh, the 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 heretical snap of the chocolate bar. She takes a bite Ooh. while oh staring gosh. at the dead body of her mm-hmm. grandmother, and you're just like. Yeah, that's a little creepy. Yeah. Uh, and after the funeral, uh, they get back home, and um, Charlie laments to her mother that she worries who will take care of her when she dies. Uh, and in contrast, Annie also confides in Steve that she doesn't feel the grief that uh, she thinks she should. Um, so there's a lot going on in this whole opening sequence. Like right. we, we kind of learn a lot about all of these characters very quickly, right? Um, and we learn a lot about the visual language of the movie. Uh, I think it's it's we can't gloss over uh, the very very first shot of this movie that that zoom in shot of the miniature yeah. version of the house, uh, where as we zoom in, uh, the character transition to being it, it's a live action shot yeah. of Peter laying in bed. He gets woken up by his dad. Uh, who tells him to get ready for the funeral? He like tosses his funeral jacket onto his bed and stuff. Um, that in that immediately all, all kind of gets you ready for like the intense and beautiful visual language that this movie is going to give you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's it's a slow dolly in. Uh, basically, it's a plate, right? So you got this miniature. Uh, they take a image of the miniature, and while it's slowly moving in, it. Re- you know, replace it with that plate of the dad walking in because it gets mm-hmm. to a certain point where it gets over the laundry basket that's on the ground. And once that, that's where the plate comes in and then mm-hmm. it's like tracking and stuff like that. So it's, it's something been used, you know, a thousand times, but seeing it in like that with that miniature was genius. Yeah. I was just like, Oh, it's such a great visual trope that gets, yeah. they, they utilize it in such a good way throughout the movie and it being a part of the story too. The fact that like, so we learn pretty quickly that Annie is like, she's an artist, right? Who builds uh, miniatures, um, miniature dolls and like little models and stuff. And she's like a renowned artist who's gotten gallery, you know, displays and stuff. Um, So that is introduced into the story. And so it's a refrain that they keep using uh, in ways that are surprising too. I love all of the creative ways that um, Pavel and Ari decide to, utilize the miniatures that they built for this set so the set itself right um this movie is filmed in utah uh sandy utah they wanted to film in salt lake city uh and i think actually the script called for initially for everything to be very snowy uh mm-hmm. astro was in, was enchanted by the idea of having like snowy mountains and stuff in the background um but because of the turn of the seasons in utah and around salt lake city you know spring arrived um and so they adjusted everything and production design adjusted things to sort of embrace uh, the change of the season into spring, all these greens and everything that kind of comes out of the the growth and the rebirth of the season. Um, and it almost kind of like parallels the idea of like mm-hmm. the uh, the rebirth and the inception of the cult, right? Wow. Um, Payment himself. Exactly, yeah. And we'll get, we'll get into it, don't worry. <laughs> uh, uh, I saw, yeah, you're chomping to the bits off Gossip Payment. We'll get into some, <laughs> some occult here in a second. Um, but that is something too that I think is, is fascinating. So this this set, uh, everything that is outside is, is shot, you know, like from that, the, of that house. Um, but everything in Inside the house is shot on a soundstage. Um, they constructed everything. They, they found out that it would, because of the, the nature of the shots that they were setting up, um, it would cost more to renovate and basically just tear down tear a house, down. essentially, than it would to just build all of the sets with, on a soundstage. And every indoor setting, um, they filmed on that soundstage. And then at the same time, constructed, they had uh, this very renowned uh, model maker. It's, uh, it's first name starts with a G, and his last name is like Newburn. Uh, I can't remember it right now. I think it's Gary Newburn or something, or Greg Newburn. But he um, 
he constructed the, the models, the miniatures for this film as well. And so there's a constant um, refrain back and forth from the miniatures to the actual sets uh, that had to be picture perfect, perfect and to scale and modeled after each other. I think what's always interesting too is like when you notice those miniature sets and because the obviously the depth of field is very shallow because you're zoomed in either with like, I don't know what if it's like a probe lens or something or mm-hmm. something very mm-hmm. like telescopic or very shallow because you even like the exterior establishing shots of the house sometimes like very later in the movie so those are tilt shift lenses is that what it is okay yes. so it was just enough it was a more of a visual yeah. effect and you know you use you know with tilt shift they basically you're moving the lens physically mm-hmm. moving the lens on the body and the elements and stuff like that on the lens so it gives that whole appearance that it looks like a miniature mm-hmm. so all those exterior wides and stuff like that that's a tilt shift lens okay wow Interesting. Yeah, that was something I was curious about. Um, yeah, we'll get into some more shots of that uh, as things uh, move forward. Um, but so in this opening sequence, right, I think something that's interesting here that uh, I don't think is explicitly laid out in the plot um, is that they talk about it in some of the extras about Steve, I guess some of the background that they did in creating the backstory for Annie and Steve. Um, Tony Collette explains in an interview how um, because of her family's history of mental illness and her own dealing with her own sort of psychology, uh, she worked with Steve, who is a therapist, who actually started out as her therapist yeah. and then like later became her husband. Um, it's just something that I don't think is in, in the, the actual cut of the film isn't actually yeah. communicated. I started to say that is not something that you I, remember, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like stated in like the obituary that you see at the very beginning mm. when he's talking about Lee and then like, the father and then of course when she, annie goes to grief counseling or the grief group mm-hmm. um and she mentions everything and like what happened to her father you know him starving himself and then yeah. her brother you know uh being you know suffering from schizophrenia and stuff like that so yeah it it kind of builds and you see with steve later on in the film when he's sitting in his office looking at his degrees and stuff then you go oh okay this guy you know how he talks to annie how he handles all the situations Whoa. because it's uh, it comes down to like themes, right? After Charlie's gone, each family member that's left falls in a certain theme, right? Mm-hmm. You have Peter who falls into trauma, but also avoidance. You have Annie who falls into confusion of like, you know, why is this happening to me? You know, I lost my mother. I, lo- I lost my father. I lost my brother. I lost my mother. Now I've lost my child. So that's like confusion. That's like mm-hmm. the first stage. And then you have the dad, Stephen, who was more like, you know, internalizing everything because you know he wants to the struggle that he's having is like keeping his family kind of some kind of normalcy right, right. and you see that in the film when he asks about you know asks his son about the ST, uh, SATs and stuff like that but then it falls into Annie's falls in from confusion to anger and yeah. the foreshadowing for her anger is at the beginning of the film where Charlie's drawing a picture of her mom at the pew with a yelling face and after she passes away, oh that is Annie's face when she's <gasps> yelling at Steven at the table. That is her face. This oh, movie is brutal. So perfect. It's brutal with just foreshadowing and returning themes that Astor is a, a <laughs> fucking genius. I don't like using that word genius, yeah. but like, man, how he's able to weave in and out of themes, it's amazing. That's so smart. Y'all, can I be real with you? I am learning so much about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that until Everything Everywhere All at Once came out, Hereditary was my number one favorite movie ever. I had seen it so many times. And y'all are like, I can't even, I haven't said anything for 30 minutes. (laughs) You're fine. No, no, no. 
That's good. You're 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 the stand-in for the audience. Know, in this, I'm in just this like role. the hype person in the background. Like that's astute. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that, that's why there's three of us here. That we need that though. We right. Need that exactly. Perspective on you're it. welcome. Um, honestly. <laughs> uh, there's also something in this opening sequence. There's something incredibly tragic about. Uh, it, it's This is you know one of the emotional elements of the movie, but like from Charlie's perspective too, the idea of uh, facing the mortality of your own family members around you, and obviously this is going to become more traumatic like later on. But there was something that hit me like I think it was even like my second watch of Charlie asking her mom because I feel like everybody has that moment right as a kid when you first either it's like right after you go to the funeral for a family member you know a grandparent or something but the idea that like your parents aren't going to be there someday like the idea that like you know she asks her mom it's like who's going to take care of me when like you Mm -hmm. know now and it's like what about when you die and it's like what about when dad dies and stuff and it's like because it's a very real thought that like when you're encountering death for the first time is so hard and such a I don't know it's a it's a very formative experience mm, for, sure. um, for people. I mean, yeah, I think about like you know I live with my grandmother and then I moved with my dad when I was seven. My grandmother grandmother was old, so like one of the fears that I had at seven eight years old was like what's going to happen to her, and like me oh. being an adult and having a kid of my own like this movie means so much more and is more terrifying wow because i mean the movie's grief loss you know and stuff like that so seeing that this movie means so much more to me because it's like so much more to lose you mm-hmm. know <laughs> so wow. yeah yeah um, so in the Lee household, right, you know, after the funeral, following the funeral, Annie goes through her uh, mother's possessions. Uh, we will learn during one of her extended monologues later uh, that her mother stayed with them at the end of her life as she slipped into dementia. Um, Annie discovers a letter from her mother that hints at a deal that her mother, Ellen, made with the devil. Um, I've seen this multiple times, but I still jump here in this scene, too, when the specter of Ellen appears yes. in the corner of Annie's office. Yeah. It's one of the many jumps scares that will sort of punctuate some of these scenes in the movie that are just expertly done though and the fucker um, stays there I started to say, it's, it's so soft though like the visuals are so dark around her mother's specter as you put yeah. it like they, you even kind of question like is she there? And that's what I love about this movie is that nothing is really actually a jump scare which is cheap and that's what you know we mean when we talk about like elevated horror is it's yeah. like it makes you sit with your own discomfort and you don't get that quick release of a jump yeah. scare, you know? Like, there is no release. Like, yeah. you're in it. And this is, like, definitely, I feel like the first moment, right, of fear. Yeah, it's the first scare that happens yeah. in the movie. And you're right, it is subtle. And I think it's subtle in a way that is capturing the feeling of what it feels like to, like, I scare myself all the time. Like, I think people, <laughs> I don't know, like, <laughs> I talk to, like, uh, I don't like, Kyra, like, our friends and stuff about, like, horror movies all the time. And they'll be like, oh, you must, like, you know, you watch horror, you just, like, love watching horror movies and, like, going to bed. And I'm like, yeah, I do. But then I also will sit, like, I have a very active imagination. And yes. I'll sit in, like, yeah. my kitchen. Like, you guys have seen my kitchen. And I'll sit at the bar, like, typing on my computer with, like, all the lights off in that kitchen except for, like, the uh, oven light. Oh, you, and then I'll just, you scare yourself on purpose. Well, I'll think about, like, you know, I'll be writing something that's scary <sighs> and then imagining a window in the face next to me and then you're just like I'm gonna pick up my computer and go to the bedroom now Um, because it is that feeling the idea of like you know when you're a kid like running up the stairs in the dark trying to like beat the light going out that's exactly the feeling that's captured here of you know seeing something out of the corner of your eye that is or isn't there uh, but it's just enough to like raise the hairs on the back of your neck and like really terrify you Um, obviously in this scene there is an actual actor there for the purposes of getting the shot right who then they cut away whenever she turns the light on Um, but man is it effective well that's the genius of this whole entire film and what Ari and Pavel did together was their whole idea to those specters being in the corner and all that stuff was 
make it so so believable in the sense of like you know you wake up at night and you're walking through eye, you're walking through the house and your eyes are adjusting to everything yeah. right and you know you're looking kind of around you kind of peek in the corner and go wait a minute that's a silhouette of something right and that's what all this film did with Oof, all yeah. their things it was just like they had they put in just enough light level exactly. enough in the toe in the darkness to go wait a minute, there's something there. Ugh, and that yeah. first scare was like the beginning of like, oh, they're going to do this shit the entire fucking film. Oh, and and once they did that, yeah. then I was like, all right, I'm going to be looking around the whole frame now. And I mean, it serves its purpose oh, yeah. later on in the film. Yeah. There's something to be said about that, like about uh, from a from the filmmaking standpoint and from like a, a camera, like a photography standpoint, particularly, is that like the, the human brain like kind of doesn't want to be but it is inclined to be scared now especially when you're in this kind of environment so you have to you have to do very little to coax it into that so it's like almost like less is more uh kind of thing um but yeah the next couple of sequences uh peter and charlie are at school and we uh kind of get back and forth shots between uh annie's home life working on her projects and peter and charlie's uh daily life uh peter is in class listening to a lecture on uh um, is that what it trials, is? Is it about the Iliad or something? Or was no, it? No, it's Hercules. It's, so okay. Hercules and the Trials, which plays. That's what it was. Okay, so yeah, 12 Trials. Like, yeah, okay. so that plays a thing too because that falls into ponds. Mm-hmm. The big thing about Hercules and the Trials was that Hercules can see everything. Everything's presented to him, mm. but he still decides to go down that path. Right. So he becomes a pawn to the gods. Right. Which is another foreshadow for Payman. And everyone wow. in the family being punks. Yeah. And I still love, ever since I heard that quote of this movie being from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb, I just can't unsee it now, right? Where it's there like, it we do get, like, uh, Tony Collette is sort of the anchor point for many of, like, the motivated scenes in this movie. But so much of it, our perspective, is almost from the limited first pr- perspective of, of Alex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Peter, Peter, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got When I was making notes, I got their names mixed up so often because there is a thing like, apparently Alex Wolf went pretty method with this too. Oh. Did you know about this? No, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, no, he I'm actually, learning all the time. Yeah, he yeah. went pretty like, so he, he, Ari referred to him as Peter mm-hmm. throughout the entire filming of the set and he made a point to sort of like separate himself from Tony Collette and from the other actors in a way that kind of mirrored his teenage angsty characters you know relationship with oh. them which is like I you know <laughs> there's a there's something to be said about method actors and stuff and like you know majority like a lot of times when people are acting method it's because they're being an asshole but like sometimes <laughs> yeah. it works like yeah, sometimes yeah. it's a thing like you know it's it's hard to deny that Daniel Day Lewis is maybe one of the best actors who's ever lived, right. um, and he goes pretty full method when, whenever he does a project. Um, and this seems like a pretty benign version of that too. Uh, okay. Alex Wolf basically just he just really really wanted to immerse himself uh, in the emotional sort of toll that it would take to to perform to ha- make this performance, and then used Ari Aster as an anchor point to guide him through. You know, which I think th- it seemed like a, the healthiest way. Like if you're gonna do this, like mm-hmm. the most healthy way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's it, it, it's like the polar opposite with Colette, mm. where she's like, she can go into a scene, turn it on, and yeah. then get off. And turn, that's what Astro was saying, exactly. like, turn it on and turn it off. And it was just like, all right. And you can even see it in the scenes when she switches tones mm-hmm. abruptly. Yes. And it's, oh my God, we got, we'll get to a couple of uh, opportunities to talk about her performance in here. Um, but yeah, this, there's a scene uh, where Peter, yeah, he's we get this foreshadowing of uh, Greek literature. Um, meanwhile, Peter, Peter is distracted by a dead ass, though. He's uh, sitting in yeah. the back of the classroom <laughs> staring at a girl. Um, and then we, uh, we get a scene of uh, Charlie in her classroom where she's supposed to be taking a quiz, but she is 
busy uh, making uh, toys out of, you know, whatever random object she finds. Um, this is something that's fun that I think is easy to forget about in this movie, too, is the fact that Charlie is also a... Uh, Ari Aster calls her a compulsive artist, oh, um, wow. just like Tony, uh, just like Annie is, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're both artists, and in a way that they both need to make art, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like in the same way, Charlie can't refrain or can't stop herself from doing it. As at any opportunity, especially when she's feeling uncomfortable, it seems like um, she uses that opportunity to to find things and string them together into little models. Um, but then that pigeon slams against the window. Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a pretty like that's an awesome jump scare as well. But yeah. it's like. I don't know. It's not the equivalent of, you know, some of the jump scares we saw this weekend at the movies, but it's it's a good one. Um, and she goes outside with a pair of scissors and very neatly snips off the head of that pigeon. And that's a... Cold-blooded. Ooh. Yeah, there's some serial killer shit going on there. Um, so back at home, uh, Annie is doing research on ghosts. Uh, Steve gets a call about Ellen's grave being desecrated. Um, and... Um, Annie goes to a uh, group therapy session and we kind of start to learn a lot more about the long family history of mental illness that she has. Yeah. Um, they do kind of sprinkle in, like, it, it reminds me of a, I, I feel like it's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre reference, right? Um, the very, very beginning of uh, the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre starts with that radio broadcast about several graves being yeah. desecrated yeah. Uh, in the area. I always forget, until we did the episode on it and, like, I went down to Austin and saw the original, yeah, like, yeah, filming yeah. locations and stuff, I had forgotten that, like, at the beginning of that movie, they lay the groundwork for, like, oh. the entire inc inciting incident, the reason that they're going to, like, the grave of their grandpa is to make sure that oh. his grave wasn't getting dug up in a very uh, Ed Gein kind of fashion, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's definitely present here as well, where it's, like, that macabre idea of grave robbing being sort of a, a throwaway thing that's happening in the background, but it's a seed that gets planted for oh, a very yeah. important yeah. plot point later on, yes. right? It's a seed um, for, like, two reasons, right? Yeah. And it's also you see Steve and the dad's internalization, one of his themes, internalizing that, you know, he didn't want to put that kind of struggle in his family. Mm -hmm. But so also trying to be a protector too, right? right? And yeah. being like using that role, like, oh, as as a, as a, a mental health, you know, professional and stuff, he he's constantly trying to avoid be triggers. the backbone, right? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, avoid triggers for the, his other family members. Yeah. And poor Steve, man, like he's Damn, just trying Steve. to hold shit together. Oh, uh, my dad's name is Steve too. <laughs> like I don't know, <laughs> one of those scenes, made right? it more real for you. I know, yeah, yeah it's a little too immersive for yeah. uh, at some points. Um, but, but the yeah. other characters, too, are, like, blocking the others from feeling their own feelings. Like, that's why Annie lies and says she's going to the movies. When she's actually going to group, she doesn't want to put any more stress on her family. Yeah. And the same thing with Peter, even. He's dealing with that all by himself. Like, this is not a family, despite the, you know, despite Steve being a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, this is not a family that talks about their feelings. Mm -hmm. Like, they're all protecting each other. It's, like, not just as the protector he needs to they all do that yeah. You know? yeah there's a in one of the reviews of this that, that kind of like highlights what the, some of the main conflicts of this are something that they pointed out um was really interesting to me was that like there's not a in in many other horror movies right like in the exorcist or some of these other like in a classic you know possession movie or anything else that's or haunting movie most of the time after sort of some of these inciting incidents they bring in a professional right where it's like yeah. uh some like priest or a therapist or a doctor or a police officer usually some figure of authority sort of inserts themselves and serves as the um like the the driving force to try to unravel the mystery and force things to go well and uh there's one analysis of it that talks about how in the absence of that authority figure 
this family turns in on itself mm-hmm. and in the absence of that authority figure they fi- you find that the family is is its own threat to itself yeah. in all of those ways wow. right um what are the interesting things about the deleted scenes some of the stuff that gets removed that got cut out of the movie um a lot of the deleted scenes are conversations between peter and steve um where steve is coming into peter's bedroom and talk it's like kind of doing the therapist thing where he's like yeah. hey uh, is there anything you, you feel like you want to talk about? Is there anything, you know, and then Peter being defensive about it, being like, do you think I need to talk? Like, do you, and like, there's these very like healthy, like I understand why it gets cut. Cause it almost kind of makes it a little bit too, it's, it's a little bit, it, it lowers the, 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 tension uh, mm. a little bit it yeah. would kind of break the ice a little bit too much right. um, but you see Steve coming in and being like I can't tell you what your experience is you only you can do that and it's like it's just almost like a too realistic of a, of a healthy portrayal of what you know good mental health cons- consultation would look like mm, okay. um, but that's the stuff that gets removed from the movie and uh, because that too because if you think about the whole dinner scene yeah. where then when Peter gets the courage to kind of go is there something you want to talk about Mom? yeah or you so I mean like it's almost like another foreshadow. <laughs> because that's where the scenes get cut. There's a yeah. scene directly before and yeah. after the dinner scene that got yeah. cut. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's really, yeah, it's really interesting. But, uh, boy, let's talk about this therapy session because this is, uh, <laughs> it's talk- talking about Tony Collette's performance, man. This yeah. is where we get the first example of it just, her just knocking it out of the park, Beast. man. God damn. Um, this is talked about, like, you know, so in, in, uh, in 2018, uh, Tony doesn't win any Golden Globes or get any Oscar noms or anything. And this is kind of looked at as one of the biggest snubs in uh, oh, award yeah. history, Disrespect. right? Boy, because, yeah, this, this scene is, um, she delivers one of her key monologues of about three-ish uh, in the movie. Yeah. Um, these monologues, uh, a couple of different uh, critics and writers have talked about how the monologues that, that we see in this movie uh, and monologues before sort of the, the decade that we're in of movies um, were always meant to kind of like communicate, um, you know, they were meant to denounce or assert, right? You have like triumphant monologues by heroes or, you know, uh, of tragic characters sort of like denouncing whatever evil they're encountering in their hero's journey. Um, whereas the monologues in this movie that Tony Collette delivers are lam- like lamentations, right? Mm-hmm. She's delivering these introspective uh, long diatribes about her experience and sort of also chain the stream of consciousness unraveling like her own feelings about her family in a way on scene that is so believable and so visceral and so gut-wrenching it's just it's powerful um in this one we get a lot of information about her family too um which kind of maybe lays the groundwork for another interpretation of this movie uh being that maybe the narrators such that such that they are um that we see in the movie are somewhat unreliable right, right. Um, maybe the things that we're seeing in this movie are not literally what's happening but maybe are the um, the the perspective of these people who are dealing with a very, very difficult traumatic situation and um, a predisposition to a mental mental health, you know, mm-hmm. crisis. Um, or it could all be very supernatural. She talks about how um, uh, her family growing up, she starts kind of like laying out how her mom spent a lot of time with them at towards the end of her life and how uh, when her mom came out of hospice care and started living with them, um, what created a very toxic environment for them and how, Steve had to even institute a no contact no contact rule where they wouldn't mm. even speak to each other within the own, their own household. And this was before Charlie was born. And then Charlie is born and Annie's mother wants to sick her she says sick her, you know, claws into her immediately uh and basically, you know, 
take usurp the role of mother almost to a point um, that is that is obviously seems unhealthy. Uh, she goes on to explain that her father had, was a bad depressive uh, who starved himself to death when mm-hmm. she was young, um, and that she had a brother who was schizophrenic uh, who believed that his her mother was in putting spirits into him right. and committed suicide at the age of sixteen. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's kind of like it's a double edged thing where it's like, oh man, this is just reinforcing the mythology of the crazy supernatural cult stuff that's going on in here and or also reinforcing the idea that you know annie may be predisposed to violent delusions mm-hmm. um because we'll learn in one of her other extended monologues that she maybe was used to sleepwalk um or at least that's her explanation for it right um but it's not overbearing no yeah. you, you you as an audience you're left there to question it right. the entire time until things you know i started to, to say when do y'all feel like it's no longer a question at, in during your ter- interpretation like when do you no longer wonder is annie just crazy and like this is really happening slash is that your interpretation that's my i kind yeah. of interpret everything in this movie pretty literally but yes. i like the idea i think it's interesting introducing this idea that like they are all or i don't know i guess there's some dangerous stuff to, like play with there because we've talked about other films where like the idea is that like um, the movie says that mental health issues are actually the product of like something supernatural. And like the movie is trying to use that oh. as a, cause like that can be kind of, kind of problematic, right? Whenever you encounter yeah. that in a movie where it's like, sure. if the movie is saying it's like, Oh, people don't actually have schizophrenia or depression. It's actually, they're just possessed by a demon. And it's like, well, at least if, at least if you're only saying it's within the universe of this movie and like, that that's not like the case. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of that, that I keep harping on, we did this in our wrap up of movies last year was like pray for the devil. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a horrible, horrible movie that came out oh, last I year see it because you said it was bad. <laughs> yeah. It's awful. <laughs> but like part of that, aside from being like weird, like Catholic propaganda yes. is like this idea of, of, uh, uh, writing off uh, mental health issues as being like spiritual defects in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is like the 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 family drama and like trauma and mental issues are put forth first um, and that everything else is just kind of like fight like ki- like wood to an open flame, right? It's just yeah. like kindling that's being thrown on an already like burning garbage fire of uh, this family's experiences. Um yeah, it, it's tough. And like, I think, yeah, like you said, the way that Tony Collette is able to deliver these monologues is in such a way that, man, are they, they're believable. And like, they, they don't, it doesn't come off as, yeah, like didactic or like ramp, like it's rambly in the right way. Like, you're like, this is how people actually talk. Like right. the way she questions herself, the way she like questions, like the things she says, not just here, but throughout the movie, when things, when certain phrases come out of her mouth, you see herself, she, she's surprised by the things she says. Right. Um, and her conclusion at the end of this monologue is that she says, I am to blame. Like, people blame me. I, people are putting blame on me. And, like, you can see that she she resents that. And she's she's coming, she's confessing that uh, maybe for the first time. Um, it's very emotionally impactful. And it kind of, like, it raises a lot of issues about, like, you know, um, the prickly nature, right, of, like, a maternal relationship, right? Like, not only from, like, daughter to mother, but then from mother to, like, you know, to her children. And that's something that, that really goes out of control here in, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, did you notice in this group therapy scene how there is, like, one chair that's empty, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was supposed to be set up for Joan because mm-hmm. Joan comes back later and references her conversation in this meeting, but she wasn't there. Uh, she wasn't there to hear any of this. So how she knows about uh, Tony about Annie's uh, mother issues is a, is a question, right? The same way that uh, when later in the film where Annie goes to Joan's apartment and there's a camera, she's knocking on the door and it cuts to a camera recording her mm-hmm. at the door. 
they're basically everywhere. And there's another scene, which we'll get to, but like there's another scene you can tell what people are sprinkled throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. So they're everywhere. they're everywhere. It's like Wicker Man or something. I don't know. Hey, it's Travis. Uh, just jumping in here in the middle of the episode to say thank you for listening. And if you guys like what you hear, please feel free to tag us on social media at Scary Sunday Scaries. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do for the podcast. It really helps us get more followers uh, and interact with you guys. So we hope we hear from you guys soon. Thanks. Um, Peter gets invited to a party. Uh, he's told to bring his dick. Uh, <laughs> Charlie with. Um, Charlie makes dolls out of dead animals and trash, and Annie is pressed by the gallery to finish her work. Uh, throughout this, Annie is uh, kind of like getting phone calls from the gallery who are constantly asking her for updates on the progress she's making for a new, um, I guess, uh, exhibit that she's supposed to be uh, presenting. Um, in the midst of this, uh, Charlie wanders into the woods and discovers a scene of some kind of witchy ritual, right? Um, I think this is where, like, all of that very green and lush imagery uh, that replaced, I guess, what was supposed to be a snowy landscape kind of comes out. Um I also think that like they have one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I guess they make good money uh, being a, a miniature doll maker and a uh, you know therapist or something. I mean, I don't doubt it. Everyone makes money off of everything nowadays. So yeah. I mean, yeah, but they have that like. Not me. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> like yeah, yeah, I wish I was making money off anything. But yeah, they have they have a beautiful house. Um, it's it's fucking fantastic. But yeah, Charlie Charlie uh, stumbles upon what appears to be uh, yeah it's it's some witchy lady uh, naked out in the middle of the forest, um, encircled in a ring of fire, uh, very much in the style of the witch or uh, the Last Exorcism or any number of great you know culty ritual oh, yeah, movies. Yeah. Um, she gets chastised by Annie, who brings her inside and uh, kind of uh, gets onto her for going outside without any shoes on. Uh, Annie tells Charlie that she is going to go to this party with uh, Peter, uh, whether she likes it or not. Um, there's this whole thing where, you know, this interplay between um, Peter and Annie, I think is really fascinating to me. Uh, I think they perfectly capture the attitude of somebody who is just sort of coming into adulthood, right? There's this thing of like when you're like 17 and 18, I, spe- I think specifically like I experienced, you know, this very much same thing. Like when you're a 17-year-old boy talking to your mom who is like, you know, you're, you're both, you're reasonable enough to know that you're navigating these like very complicated Buttons. conversational <laughs> dynamics. Yeah. And, uh, and you're trying like, he's trying to outsmart his mom. Um, she asks him, you know, no drinking. Right. And he says, Oh, we're too young to drink. You know, we, we couldn't even buy alcohol. And she says, that's a crock. You know, like yeah. I love her attitude. Like, I mean, it's obviously it's like, I not, not that it's, it's good, but it's like, it's amazing. Like very, very well executed. Like, and so interesting and realistic the way she, treats him and responds to his like different you know attempts at like deflecting or hiding or lying to her um but she forces him to take charlie with him with him uh I, to, to prevent him from drinking she sends him sends charlie along and says okay now definitely no drinking yeah. mm-hmm. um you have to be safe um the foreshadowing yeah you know <laughs> yeah um they get to the party right all right so this party scene uh this is obviously the catalyst for kind of like everything that goes on in the rest of the movie. Um, they arrive at the party uh, and there's lots of kids there who are drinking and stuff. Um, there's a very explicit shot of some of the teenagers cutting up a 
whole pound of almonds and cashews or you see what, it in the trailer yeah <laughs> what could they possibly be making with that thing nuts that's so true i i never uh, thought about that but you're right that's entirely too many nuts too much yeah. nobody nuts. needs that what are they for a charcuterie <laughs> board or like maybe it was like yeah it was like, like this aster going like hey you guys are dumb here are the nuts yeah <laughs> Something's about to happen. Because <laughs> if you're making like like a cake, like they, it's not that there was they put nuts in the cake. I think the implication is that they were cutting up all of those nuts with that knife and then cross contaminated to this. They use the same mm. knife to cut the cake, right? Because mm-hmm. Charlie is smart enough that like she knows to look for exactly. like they established that earlier, exactly. right? She knows to look for that in her food, um, and so she like eats the cake and obviously like she starts having an allergic reaction. I think that's what it is: is that the same knife was used for both things, and that's how she got infected or got you know had her reaction or whatever. But entirely too many nuts. Uh, like I said, it, whether it's like a charcuterie board or just a bowl yeah. of fucking nuts, I'll I don't know. Right now, all also, the high school parties I've been to in my life, <laughs> never seen someone chopping up nuts like that. And if I did <laughs> see that, I'd probably leave because I'm like, this is not the party I want to be part of. Uh, I would hilarious. definitely have questions. Yeah. yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, these people are very fancy, you know? <laughs> I think I would hang by just to see what they would do next, you know? I don't know what those Salt Lake City, Utah high school parties are like, though. I <laughs> mean, those mother they probably get into some weird shit. Like, I hope so. There is sake. something to be said. Like, I don't know if it's ever explicitly sort of uh, in, like, sort of explored or anything. Um, but maybe it was like a throwaway line from like the extras where they talked about filming in Utah, where it was like the mountains too. But there is also something just like there's. I think Ari Aster said something magical about Salt Lake City because for me, like the history of like Mormonism and like Mormonism too, also being sort of. Uh, steeped in the occult in its own way like it's you know it's it's just Christian Harry Potter right it's some wow. weird like yes. yeah. um, and there maybe there's something to be said about like the inherent receptibility of like these people being you know to to witchiness or whatever that it's a weird place it's a yeah. magical place like I've been there a couple of times I went there for Sundance once and it's just I mean I'm not like an outdoors person but I'm like looking around the scenery I'm like oh man if I could definitely ride a bike or hike or something here. It's a weird place. Yeah, I've never been, but it looks beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I, yeah, I would love to visit. I, I want to get up there and go hang around. But um, Give yeah, me a couple wives. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter goes off to smoke weed uh, with a cute girl from earlier. Uh, he, I love him. The scene, the, watching him go into the room where he thinks he's like, he's like, oh, hell yeah, I've got weed. And this girl's down to smoke. And they go into that room. and you Four you, different people in there. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, oh, like, your friends you. are here too. Yeah. He's like, hey, Peter has weed. <laughs> so he has to like, I've never seen like the, the joy drop from his face. Like, I know that exact feeling of like being like, this Course is not direction. what I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> um, the righteous path. I love that he's like he he is a good brother though, right? I think that's Absolutely. what's kind of what's so unfortunate about this entire thing is that he doesn't like he doesn't push Charlie away. He doesn't force her to like he's not mean to her. Like even though he was clearly forced to bring her along, she doesn't want to be there either. Um it, he tr- avoided the whole cliche of like older brother and younger sister dragging along all yeah this you can tell the love that he has for his sister right in yeah that he whole scene. actually cares about her yeah. and like the only thing that like actually so like another deleted scene that got removed there's like one scene that happens like right before they go into the party that they took out um where 
uh, Charlie asks, she, she tells Peter, I'm going to wait outside. I'm just going to stand out here. And he says, no, you're going to come inside with me because you came with me. And if you stand out here, I'm going to have to drive you all the way back home. And it would be, it's the only inclination that he's like, you know, kind of being a little bit like rude or just annoyed by her mm-hmm. and stuff. Cause the rest of the time he's like, he's like, go eat some cake. You know, they're giving it out to everybody. Just go eat some cake. It's fine. Um, and then as soon as she comes to him and tells him, she's like, you know, clearly having an allergic reaction. He immediately jumps into action, oh, yeah. picks her up, carries her outside of the car and like takes the fuck off. And I think that's what makes it so oh, much more tragic yeah. the next couple of minutes. Definitely. Um, because they're speeding home. He tells her, you know, we're on our way to the hospital. We're almost there. Uh, and she's like, her throat's closing up. She's having trouble breathing and stuff. So she sticks her head out the window. And man, uh, there's a telephone pole. Yeah. And <laughs> we passed it earlier. It has the symbol of payment yes. on it. Uh, there's a deer in the road. Peter swerves to avoid the deer. And lo and behold, that telephone pole comes and just... Pops Charlie's head right off, man. Oh, Just yeah. like how Charlie cut the head off that pigeon. <laughs> oh, shit. Exactly. Oh, my God. It's yeah. all foreshadowing. Sure are three uh, decapitations in this movie. Whenever Annie is going through, shut the fuck up because listen. <laughs> <laughs> you just connected something for me because the, whenever Annie is looking through the book... And she's like reading about mm-hmm. like payment. There's like three See, th- beheaded. Yeah. What the fuck? Don't yeah. take my glory. I've been waiting for <laughs> oh this payment. I'm so sorry. You're right. We'll get to it. We'll Go. get to it. Um, but yeah, man, this oof, oof, this scene. Yeah. Like when you see him, the it's. I think it's subtle because it took me like I think I didn't remember it until I watched it recently. Um, for this was him sitting there with his hands like clenched on the steering wheel yes. and he's trying to process what happened and you see him try to start oh, looking up at the rear view mirror that's but he so heartbreaking can't. he yes. can't look up at the rear view mirror and he just whispers he says you okay yeah. and then he just like no response and then just says okay and then why super wide mm-hmm. right and the car just starts inching forward mm-hmm. and you're like fuck the dude. patience that Ari had in that whole scene because again it's a foreshadowing because if you remember later on in the film when Peter is about to be possessed he hears the and he looks back almost like he was looking back in the rear view mirror and it shows the image of the rear view mirror so like he finally was able to look back and then like I mean the possession was happening Mm, yeah right yeah yeah we I I don't know if we explicitly talked about the the clock the sound yes. right uh so man what a, what a great tool like what yes. a simple stupid yes. idea yes. that surprisingly no one has used before i was thinking that like every little kid does that fucking sound I know. how is it only in one movie and now we all know exactly what movie it references you <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah to the point that it's scary to hear it like yes. especially if you're like like us in this past couple of weeks where you like watch this movie a bunch of times mm-hmm. and you're like i'll <laughs> I do that randomly like how you're like walking in the kitchen like, right right after we watch this movie and you're just like stop <laughs> stop that right now um because it only t- it just takes like you you break the silence with that and it just like it completely flavors an entire scene right it takes no more motivation than just hearing that simple sound and it just like completely changes the tone of an entire sequence and it's it's absolutely terrifying um so peter very uh slowly drives home uh makes it back to the house and so like quietly emotionlessly goes inside puts himself in bed and just does not move um i didn't remember until a rewatch that like there is audio as he ascends the stairs you hear from annie and steve's bedroom you hear her say home yeah Yeah. she says oh they're home it's okay now and he goes inside there is something that happens at the party too um that um 
you kind of glance over where Peter does get a phone call from his mom, and he does call him, and he ignores it, and she leaves a voicemail. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes into play in a deleted scene, but it, it's just something that kind of like happens right here. Um, but anyway, so Peter lays in bed, and then you know we transition to daytime, just staring at his face, and we just stare at his face the entire time as you hear Annie wake up. She tells Steve mm-hmm. she's going to the store. You hear her go downstairs, go yeah. outside, open the car door, and man, it initiates one of the most horribly like or horrible sequences the most well portrayed yes. sequences of grief and and loss and experience that you've ever seen yeah. tony collette can fucking scream oh, dude. oh my like, god yeah between her and florence Pugh and midsummer for oh, example yes. man like i don't know what ari is doing to these people to get them to <laughs> give these performances on you know on these sets but dude collette's portrayal of like loss as a mother is probably the best captured loss i've ever seen on, on yeah. screen just the I want to die like that yes. rocking back and forth, almost like, you know, in the position of like, you know, not childbirth, but in the sense of like, oh, wow. really? she's in the like, fetal yeah. position. Fetal like, position. yeah. 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 And she's, you know, she's gone and all this and the slow pan over where Peter's standing outside, just Ugh. taking in everything that's being said and his mother's grief and internalizing his, you know, and, his avoidance for what he did, you know, and that it, trauma and dealing with that. It's such a good portrayal of that, too, of that perspective. When you witness somebody going through that and you're just so at a loss for how to, like, how can I, you, you don't know how to say. help. Like, yeah, there's, nothing there's nothing to do say. or yeah. say. And you feel completely helpless from the outside of, of watching somebody experience that, too. Um but yeah, God, it's rough. Like it's, uh, I, I mean, I've watched this like four times in the past week and still every time, even just like thinking about that scene, man, like yeah. her, she just like, it, it can't not bring you to tears. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's rough. Um, it is very much, yeah. Like that, that very, the opening of uh, Midsommar mm-hmm. of, uh, of seeing Florence Pugh, yes. uh, another fucking amazing actor go through the same thing when she experiences the death of her family. Uh, and you're just like, God damn it. Like, yeah. I think, you know, Ari Aster just lucked out with two fucking amazing actors who were able to put this, you know, his words into, into action, sure. uh, and do something with them. Um, the, uh, yeah. So Charlie's death, uh, kind of like carries forward, with uh, but you get almost in a montage style, right? Of uh, the funeral, um, there's that great sort of shot of like the cross section of the field of the cemetery uh, that Charlie is buried in, um, where we get buried with mm. Charlie, right? Uh, wow. As an audience, yes. right? You get bar- put put below the earth. Um, at the house, uh, Steve is sort of like trying to go and do damage control. Uh, everybody is kind of like, you know, it, it's a household of grief, right? Where it's like sort of like it's be- not being lived in essentially at that moment. Like everybody's there, but everybody's avoiding each other. Um, and it's it's very, very rough. Um, in the next couple sequences, right? Like pan- Peter has a panic attack at school. Um, Annie goes to group therapy again and she meets Joan. Uh, and uh, Annie starts sleeping in the treehouse. Um, sorry. Um, there is a scene here. So there's another beautiful shot, right, uh, of the funeral uh, with through like that stained glass window where it's almost like caramel, where you see all of, like the vague figures. Um, Everybody is all distorted through the glass. Uh, there is one deleted scene in here that I almost kind of wish they would have put in, where uh, at the funeral Peter is looking through that glass, right, and then somebody else from the funeral comes and starts talking to him. He's like, you know, Peter, are you okay? Can I do anything for you? Uh, and he has this like the weirdest look on his face that's like somewhere in between like confusion and like just like dismay or whatever um, but he's like I have to go to the bathroom and he goes to the bathroom uh, and in the bathroom it's it almost looks like he's going to be sick or, like over the sink and they kind of cut away but then they come back to him and it's like a full bathroom and he's still in there and uh, Steve comes up and knocks on the door and is like hey you okay in there and Peter is sitting 
sitting on the edge of the bathtub with like his feet in the bathtub and uh he pulls out his phone and it's like the entire shot is just of him from behind and he pulls out his phone and listens to the voicemail that his mom left him from the night of the party and in the voicemail uh it's his mom being really sweet it's his mom being like hey just wanted to call and check on you make sure you guys are being okay i love you guys have fun you know just make sure you make it home home okay yeah and it's like just that little window into life before this happened mm-hmm. right it was it's really really effective i i i you know they cut it for time and start you know whatever obviously but like that one is is yeah, rough, rough uh, yeah. too um so Annie is sleeping on the floor in the in the treehouse. She's surrounded by these uh, glowing red space heaters, right? So as Peter is like lying in bed at night up in his bedroom, he rolls over and you just see the red glow of uh, from inside the treehouse, uh, and it's really kind another of another for, another foreshadowing for uh, what happens in happen later, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's also kind of like people talk uh, say that it's a reference to like the windows of the Amityville Horror, Horror. House from mm-hmm. the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be compared to those. Um, but in the next, uh, the next big one, that uh, big scene that happens uh, is Annie at Joan's apartment, right? Um, this is where we get another one of Annie's amazing monologues, and then we learn a lot more about her relationship with Peter, um, especially how it's developed up to this point. Um, so Annie was go- she was going to group therapy, right? And then she like ends up uh, running into Joan, uh, who you know talks to her about her her mom, uh, and it's like, hey, how do you know about that? Um, but Annie doesn't catch that. Uh, she just sort of talks to Joan uh, who invites her over to her house to uh, talk more because Joan uh, tells her that she lost her son and her grandson who died in a flood um, which may or not be may or may not be true yeah. um, died at, lost her grandkid and uh, son to drowning drowning mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. right um, but the scene over at Joan's house right uh, we find that in Joan's apartment she does stitching in the same style that uh annie's mother did um and she says oh what a coincidence yeah uh or how about that uh and the the doormat that annie sees before walking in which is not like a doormat right it looks like a prayer rug yeah yeah Yeah, why is it like pillowy yeah it's like a pillow (laughs) it doesn't seem like something you'd want to step on at all yeah Yeah. that's not for rubbing your feet on no cult members like to be on their knees i guess (laughs) oh wow that's what it is that's yeah that's what it is that sounded so suggestive (laughs) (laughs) it depends on which cult you're talking about yeah i don't know there it is (laughs) um but uh, they they start having a conversation uh, about Annie and her family and her relationship to every, uh, to the rest of the family, and this is where we learn <clears throat> that Annie had uh, an experience uh, sleepwalking uh, one time. She relays to Joan um, that in the middle of the night, when Peter and Charlie were still children, or when still sharing a room, and they were much younger, um, that she woke up in the middle of the night having covered both. Peter and Charlie and herself in paint thinner. Uh, she says that she woke herself up having struck a match, um, which also woke up Peter, who started screaming at her. Um, and she says that like the, the way she says, I you know I put it out immediately, right? Mm. Uh, but like the indignation that she kind of explains the story with of like you that know like I wasn't gonna it do built, it. Yeah, yeah. The distrust that it built between her and Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is evident. And I think that's why they didn't do the whole scene where Peter's in the bathroom listening to that message because. They still want to give the audience this thing like there's something between it's more something between Peter and Annie mm-hmm. other than right. you know other than Charlie's death because that that tension was there beforehand so I think it was smart for him to kind of get rid of that. maybe that's it would have been what, yeah. it would have been impactful but like I think it was smart to kind of keep that 
that tension between them. Yeah. yeah. And that was a breathable moment, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. In the sense of like, you know, if we would have heard the message, yes, that would have been sad, but you also been like, oh, she, oh, she loves him actually, you Ooh, know? Ooh, yeah. Whereas the whole movie, you're kind of questioning like, does, does she, she love she him? Actually, totally, yeah. does you're like so this? right. Yeah. yeah, does she even like her son? <laughs> yeah. Um, especially with the dinner that happens right after this, right? Like, yeah. man, this dinner oh, scene. <sighs> I'm so glad that you're talking about this. Okay, yeah. so this is the scene that makes me realize that she doesn't feel any amount of guilt for what happened to Charlie at all. Mm-hmm. She is 100% blaming Peter for Absolutely. it, yeah. which really is shocking because like the amount of grief that she felt like, I don't know, just usually with grief comes a little bit of self-blame, like especially like if you're the parent, like it's your job to protect, you know? And at yeah. no point did she reflect on sending Charlie to the party with Peter, she has because he even brings it up, right? Yeah, yeah. she, she was wasn't like, in that part of that stage of grief yet. No. <laughs> stuck in anger. But will she? Will she though? Because no, she no. she's so resentful yeah. of being blamed, Absolutely. right? That like that's her trauma, mm-hmm. like that she talks about. Like I'm to blame. Like she can't be blamed. She's deflecting. So yeah, that's like definitely aids into the tension, like with Peter for sure. It's that separation because she says it with her mom, right? My mom had her life. This is my life. In, in in the the session that she has, the grief session that she has, that was my mom's life is one of the things she says and mm-hmm. like not her. So like that degree of separation that she holds, she feels like she's to blame because she won't accept her part in things, right? She couldn't accept her, her part in, you know, with her mother and the relationship she had with her mother mm. because, you know, her mom was probably, you know, from what we gather and understand about the cult was probably, the son was probably the favorite. She wasn't the favorite. So she probably was like left out of stuff. And then when it comes to losing Charlie and, you know, yes, she did force upon her, you know, her son to take Charlie. But like at the end of the day, she goes, that was your responsibility kind of thing. Mm. Like you were there to protect your sister, you know, kind of thing. And I think, yeah, she, she, she has to separate herself because that's how she deals with her own traumas. It's it's impossible to have to like to come to terms with like the idea that she would have that she played a role yeah. uh, in that death. And man, just like backing up a little bit too, like the the performances in, I mean, this dinner scene is kind of like, aside from, you know, the the crazy horrific ending and like, you know, the build up to it, this is sort of like, you know, the centerpiece of the movie. Like yeah. this is where everything sort of like gets, like initiates um, the the trajectory that everybody else, that everybody will follow towards the, the end of the movie. the table. The yeah, and, but man, like, talking about, like I said, talking about Steve, man, poor fucking God, Steve, because Steve. when you watch this scene again, obviously we're so entranced by Tony Collette's performance, yeah. um, the way she's reacting to the things that Peter says, like, he's very subtle with the things he says, you can tell he's afraid to poke the bear almost, but like, he wants to it's get over this, right? angst, he yeah. just can't yeah. help it, and that was like a perfect scene for that because having arguments with my parents right mm-hmm. you, you know just what to say to play that line you got right? something you want to say it, yeah. exactly it's just it was so perfect and her reaction to everything was just so fucking spot on it was mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful like tense heavy scenes in the entire film but it was so accurate to just being like remember being a teenager and right. pushing you know poking the bear kind of, you know because it's not overwritten too that's no. what's so great about all of these monologues by Tony Collette is that they're so believable because like like when she looks at him she's like you have that fucking face on your face yes. and it's like you're that's like yeah that real. is something you would say in that yes. situation like when you're unable to you're so angry you're yes. unable to find yeah. the right like yeah. you know the eloquent way to put Absolutely. it um, and it's just it's so perfect but then like 
uh, like I said, on a couple of rewatches, one thing that I caught on this most recent one that you kind of forget to look at is you, looking at Gabriel Byrne's face. Like whenever they yes. start fighting, dude, and whenever Tony is like like lashing out at Peter and he is like Gabriel Byrne is on the verge of tears. Mm-hmm. Like he's trying to suppress like a sob mm-hmm. and you're like, fuck Steve. Yeah. I'm so sorry. You just yeah. want to keep this family together. Cause his initial <laughs> reaction to you when she was like, don't talk to me. I'm your fucking mother. Yeah. yeah. He was like as shocked as Peter was. Because yeah. He, he probably never seen her react that way ever, you know? And then in his head, like thinking like, how the fuck do I even like navigate this? this? Like, like, what tools that I have for being a you know a psychiatrist? Like what? How can I like extinguish this flame as fast as possible? But wow, he let it drag out. I started to say, he yeah, he let it drag out because I I feel like it was almost like a thing that he could tell the tension between both of them. He knew the tension between both of them. So in that control environment, I guess he felt like that was the best way for them to do it. And then when it got to the point where it was like all right, this can ruin your relationship forever. Like, all right, that's enough. He says, stop. Stop he it. Put, tries yeah. to put, yeah, he puts it end to it. And I love, like, whenever this scene ends, right, and we get the, like, the super wide of the kitchen table, which is all on the it right side of the there. screen. Yeah, and then <laughs> it just Tony gets up and then exits, exits stage right, right? It's like yeah. a whole thing. You're like, that's beautiful. And then, I fucking love that. you know, Steve grabs yeah. his hand and for yeah. a moment and passes back and then covers his face which is sufficient right because there isn't okay the last cut the latest scene that i'm going to talk about is the one uh there's a scene that happens right after this um and it's basically like peter up in like sitting on his bed at night and this whole fight has happened and uh gabriel steve comes back and in, comes into his room again to check on him and uh peter asks gabriel Byrne, like do you blame me too and it starts mm-hmm. like they have like a um, they have like a goodwill hunting moment, and mm-hmm. it's like it's a lot, and it's yeah. like it, it's it's removed because like it's sufficient to have him do that very subtle thing. I think they went for subtlety with this mm-hmm. because like that scene is, is like heart wrenching. Like it literally is like Peter. Uh, it, it would also be him like kind of stealing the the weight of uh, Tony Collette's scene earlier when she says she wants to die because in this deleted scene. He talks to, uh, he tells Steve, he says, I just, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to, I want to die. It should have been me. Uh, you know, Charlie could do things and she was good and you loved her. It's like, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I want to die. And it's like Steve, like holding him and like Aww. trying to tell him. And it's, yeah. it's, it's intense. Yeah. It's you know what? Having that scene in there, because at, as I was listening to y'all's interpretation of that scene, I was really blown away by like both of you seeing Steve as this three dimensional character. And that moment, I was so angry at Steve. Right. I was so mad at him. I was like, why is he not interjecting? Like, Tony Collette, Annie is going way too far. She's she's scarring, like, her relationship with Peter. Like, I felt like that was damaged enough. So, like, having these scenes would have completely changed Steve for me. But maybe, like, it's better that I saw him as that flat, you know? It's tough. I think it would be, yeah, I think it's easy to, like, to... Sometimes it's better to throw the pie in someone's face than eat it. Yeah. Like you, you want... just make that up? Just make that up. Wow. <laughs> Write that down. Hurry. Trademark. That's a t-shirt yeah. now. <laughs> All right. We're making it a t-shirt. Um, yeah, because that's tough. Because it's, like, obviously, like, you know, like we talked about before with him being, you know, a therapist... It's like you would assume that he would have the tools to navigate this better, but I guess that's what sucks. It's like it's he's mm-hmm. also going through grief, right? right. It's like he's also experiencing this all at the same time of also th- assuming that he 
is the person that has to like deal with everybody else that, you know, solve this problem for everybody and serve as like a, a blanket for the fire or, you know, to keep everybody from, um, from turning on each other. But it's funny that you said blanket for the fire. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause, uh, unfortunately that's not, that doesn't go well for him. We're yeah, showing. Shortly. <laughs> um, so Annie runs into Joan again. Uh, we kind of get into our uh, occult, uh, section of the movie here. Um, More so haunted house yeah. to the cult at this moment. Yeah, there's lots of like Ouija origin of evil or like, mm. you know. Oh, actually, the second one's actually pretty yes, good. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, planning it. Planning yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like that one a lot better. Um, yeah, or like, or any number of movies that have, you know, seance summoning stuff. Um, because for all the, all the great stuff that this movie does, uh, as far as like pushing the genre, it does, you know, it kind of, it plays the hits too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what these scenes are. You know, we have, uh, but they have their, they have a spin on them where the scene of Tony Collette doing the seance with Joan, right. It's a pretty by the numbers, like seance scene. Like you kind of expect, like you understand what's going to happen. Um, but there's something about the subtlety of like Tony Collette's reaction yes. to like everything mm-hmm. that goes on. Mm-hmm. There's a little special, it's so subtle. Like it's there's all in her face. so few special <laughs> effects in this movie, but it just yeah. takes a little bit, right? The little flick of her hair and her yeah. reacting to it in yeah. such a, like a shocked and like, you know, realistic way. Sure. Um, in this scene, they have Joan uh, summoning the spirit of her dead grandson, um, who who they use a chalkboard to have him write "I love you, mummy" or gra- uh, Grammy on yeah. the uh, yeah. on the chalkboard, yeah. uh, which is clearly that, that's the spirit of payment, right? That's just like her absolutely. and payment being like, "Hey, you want to fuck with this lady? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's yeah. let's pretend because that you're." If you, if you go back to right, I mean, I don't want to give it away so far, but anyway, you go back to where she runs to runs into her uh, outside of the grief counseling thing and you have that whole conversation and she ends up giving her number now before she even has that interaction with Joan she's at her miniature doing her thing and the paint falls over and lands on the sheet and she picks it up and makes that call now if you slow that down (laughs) Annie doesn't knock over that paint that paint falls by itself Oh, Ooh, that's gonna chill up my spine. Gross. I never caught that. And the only reason, you know, how I caught it because yeah. I literally was going through frame by frame yeah. taking photos. <laughs> send me later. Yeah. Then I sent, yeah, and I sent him, like, and I was like, wait a minute, what the fuck? And then I went back and looked, and Annie does not touch that paint. It Ooh. falls over by itself. Jamaro's <laughs> sitting there with his computer. Enhance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's so Sunday awesome. Sunday scaries. Here I come, baby. <laughs> Wait, blow that up for me real quick. Um, yeah, the seance is great. I mean, it's great because it's like it, it does set up like, you know, it, she's she has trepidation at first. Like she's not fully invested. Uh, it takes some convincing for her to, to fully she buy in. She under the table. Yeah, she's, they, they, they both do it, right? Gabriel Byrne, like Steve yeah, does it later day, too yeah, whenever yeah. she does the seance at their house. Uh, yeah, this is, that's what you do. You're like, all right, what the fuck is going on yeah. here? Let me look under this like Nightmare Alley style. Guillermo del Toro. Um <laughs> So uh, we get this nightmare sequence here in a second, right? Like, I think that's pretty much what happens after this, uh, the seance. Uh, this nightmare sequence also is, like, one of the most beautiful, like, talking about the limited number of special effects in here, but there's just enough to, like, make this work. And I also think it does a really good job of, like, 
you know, the monologues that we've had, right, of Tony Collette's that um, could be uh, tedious or arduous in, in another movie where um, something that these monologues could be guilty of in a, in a lesser movie is too much telling and not showing, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, she's explaining this whole family history of what happened to her, you know, off screen. And she's explaining the stream or this other event that happened in uh, Peter's childhood, um, which could be, it could bog the movie down and be too much, you know, like I said, explanation rather than showing us visually using the medium uh, to demonstrate that. And I think this justifies that because what we do is like, you know, this is basically a replication of the story that she told to Joan earlier um, of her attempting, basically attempting to kill Peter when they were younger. Um, She wakes up in the middle of the night and sees ants crawling all over uh, her window seal, which are, you know, are referential to the the ants that were crawling all over the skull of uh, of uh, Charlie that we saw earlier in the movie, um, and she follows the ants out over to uh, to Peter's room, and Peter is covered in, in ants um, all over his face, um, and in the middle of the night, uh, he he seemingly wakes up, and she seemingly wakes up within her nightmare. Uh, he asks what she's doing, and she says, "You know, is Charlie here?" Um, out of kind of like out of nowhere, and it's in this scene where she confesses to him that she never wanted to be his mother that she tried to have a miscarriage and this is some of the darkest shit that you could how did you try to do it I was like dude why she said any way I could I tried to I did everything they told me not to do I tried to have a miscarriage but I'm glad you're here I'm glad you're alive but him screaming at her you tried to kill me why did you try to why are you afraid of me why did you try to kill me mom and this happens a couple of times where it's not just uh, like twenty. It happens to Nicolette, like we mentioned earlier, where when she's going through her her grief over Charlie's death, you know, she's kind of reduced to a childlike state um, when she's in the fetal position on the ground, uh, and it happens in a moment too when she does the séance, but she's like channeling the voice of Charlie. But for Peter's character, it's it's some of the most gut-wrenching and scariest moments of the movie is when he's reduced to a childlike mm-hmm. state because when he like either is sobbing or imploring at Annie um he's his voice his register goes up and his his he chooses words where he's you know he's like why mom like why did you try to kill me why do you hate me and it's like there's something so fucking like heart-wrenching about hearing him like say that and like scream that at her um even I don't want to jump ahead of time but like even when the attic scene is happening, he's like, yeah. mommy, mommy. Exactly. It's the scariest, like, I don't know. It's like probably the scare, one of the scariest moments of the movie too. Cause yeah. he's just begging for some kind of inco- like her to realize like, Hey, I'm your child, mommy, mommy, please. And it's like, you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Or he's just so wrapped and terrified by what's happening that he can't even comprehend it. So it just reduces him to this yeah. state. And he's just like, and she's like, meanwhile, she's fucking upside down, banging her head rapidly mm-hmm. against yes. the attic door. Yeah. And it is like, yeah, it's fucking one of the scariest moments of the movie. Um, but yeah, here too. And then she, you know, in terror, like they, they suddenly become doused in quote unquote paint thinner, like, yeah. right. And then like they erupt in flames and she wakes up again. Um, but yeah, what a great nightmare sequence, man. Like that yeah. one is, Oof, it's rough. But that's that's after she that's when she resolves to go, to go conduct the séance herself, right? Off screen, I guess she does the séance one time and then it like works. And so she wakes everybody up in, in the house up. Um, she shows that affection towards Peter. Yeah, like, I had this horrible dream, and yeah, she's like, "It's okay, come with me, come with me." And right. Yeah. Because it's not only here, but like once she kind of kicks off the uh, you know the curse, and she sort of incites like the the demon. She invites. Um, 
Yeah, she invites him. Once she kind of turns and, and she starts trying to eliminate it, yeah. she does kind of like go back into a protective role. Like once this new threat has introduced itself, it seems like she's in in a different place where like tonally she's it's now them against the threat again, right? And after all the all the uh, you know, she starts realizing the connection of Joan to her right. mother. And then, you know, going to Joan's spot and, you know, trying to communicate it with there and realizing, mm-hmm. looking through that, you know, grimoire, grimoire uh, book and what it was saying about the cult itself. Right. She knew the only way to get rid of it was, you know, Joan says, you know, with her grandson, you have to find an item that connect like their favorite item to right. connect with yeah. them. His was the chalkboard. Now, also, this is the fuckery of the cult where... Joan, uh, where Annie recognizes Joan outside of the store, you look in the car, there's a chalkboard in the car. Yeah. So, I mean, that was foreshadowing for that event, right? But, you know, Annie having uh, Charlie's book and it being kind of the connection between Charlie and you know, the other side and her mom, her trying to get rid of that, it was like lighting her on fire because that connection had been made. That door had been opened and oh. she was like the conduit of that door. <gasps> So wow, yeah, that's why she couldn't get rid of it. She yes. realizes that pretty quickly, like because it, it goes pretty pretty quickly from yeah. them doing the seance, right? Like in the midst of the seance, they do the same thing that they did at Joan's house, where they're all resting their hand on the cup. But this one kind of goes off the rails. Yeah, and even Peter says he's like, "Why is the, do you not feel the air like Shit. yeah yeah? What do does we he say? Sucking or does he say like uh like pulsating or pulsating something? or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. and um yeah. In this scene, Annie clearly basically she she gets like possessed essentially, um, and uh, flexing is what he says. The air is flexing, mm. flexing. Um, but like it's clear that she like you know she starts growling and then she like kind of channels the voice of Charlie for a mm. moment and there's like a weird doubling effect on her voice mm. and Peter's freaking the fuck out. He's, he's like he's he done. says stop it please yeah. like make it yeah. stop. Yeah. Uh, and then like Steve comes in and tosses water on her face. Uh, and you know, puts everything to it to an end. Um, yeah, the the type of crying that Alex Wolf does in these scenes, man. Like, yeah, it's just a little bit too like. It's just re- his regression. Yeah, he's yeah. able to kind of like play within that world. Yeah, it, it was believable, you know. Oh, for oh, sure. Oh yeah, yeah, it's rough. Um, but Peter's cursed now, pretty much. Um, <laughs> one thing that we've kind of like not talked about is like the 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 shimmer, right? Which yeah. is yes. also was another great effect. Yeah. Um, it pops up a couple times, right? It does. I have questions about the shimmer based on my interpretation of the movie, but it would give away the ending. No, talk about it. Okay. The light of payment. Dude, no, but listen though. (laughs) But listen, okay? So Annie talks about how she did not let Alex and her mom interact, right? She was like, I, what did she say whenever Charlie was in bed? She was like, I let her have you or something. Peter. What did I say? Alex. Shoot. (laughs) Yeah, right. I did the same thing. Oh my gosh, how funny. Peter. Yeah, I do mean that. Um, Anyway, so there was a bond then between Charlie and the mom and the and the grandma, right? So that means that the grandma wanted Peter because right. it's a male conduit, right? right? right, right, right. Okay. Here's my interpretation. My interpretation is that Payman was like already funneled into Charlie by the time Charlie died because, right? Okay, we're on the same page about this, right? Okay, check this out. So then, yeah, Peter gets possessed by Charlie, who is payment, huh? But then, what the fuck is the shimmer? Because, <laughs> right? Because whenever Peter's down the hallway, the shimmer happens. And the first time I saw that movie, I was like, oh, that's payment. But then whenever I found out that Charlie and payment were the same, 
there's confusion because there's a shimmer with Charlie earlier in the movie. Yeah. What is the shimmer? I think it like, I don't know. My interpretation of it was that like they were like Charlie was aware of it and that it was sort of like coexisting with her, like following her around because it would like motivate her to do things and like it would. Same with all of them. Yeah. The shimmer did it for all of them. So the lore of Pavement, right? He's considered one of the, in the movies, he's considered one of the eight uh, kings of hell, right? In the Grimoire and Solomon book, whatever it's called, it's Philosophy actually of Solomon. Yes, it's nine, uh, nine people of hell, nine kings or whatever of hell, generals or whatever hell. Nine now, rings for the army of men. Correct. So <laughs> Payman was obsessed with Lucifer. Mm-hmm. So when Lucifer made the whole jump of like, yo, f God, I'm done with this guy. Um, Payman went down and became a king, where other people were kind of like generals and whatever. So. The big thing about payment is, right, so he's very feminine, but he doesn't like looking feminine. So mm. the, the depiction of payment, he's on like a camel kind of animal. Yeah, all the pictures I've seen of him are on a camel. Like he's like a fucking cigarette ad. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> on a camel, but he has like like webbed feet, like a duck, like a bird or something. Right? What? Yes. This guy's quacking. So <laughs> what we see the image of like in the story, you see payment on a camel carrying a staff that a finger is pointing like this. And he has three heads, right? Yes. Also on his sigil, there's three circles above his sigil and mm-hmm. then almost like a throne. Now, in the actual sigil, there's four, though, right? There's four yeah. in the actual one. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Eric changed that as well. I think, it was, I think it was a good graphic design choice because I think it's just a little too busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, t- the three sacrifices that happened. Yeah. Right, exactly. Between all the matriarchs of the family. Also, my assumption was that there may be an element, like whether for Grace Yoon, the production designer, or Ari was aware of it, that they were like, Let's not invite too much. Exactly. Don't like, touch that. Let's yeah. just let's not like with fuck that. with. Like, let's yeah. just change the symbol enough that let's it's not like do not the, the exact shit. one. Yeah, let's like, not yeah. do, do the exercise. Whether or not they, oh, shit, be- yeah, you believe yes. in it or anything. Like, let's absolutely. not let's not create the energy of yeah, like you know. Uh, absolutely. But so yeah, so the big the powers of the abilities that payment has is um, he's able to like acquire servants, um, reanimate the dead. Trying to remember all of them. Mm. You can see like apparitions and then he defies physics. Mm. So those things are all important in this movie because yeah. if you think about acquired servants, you think about the occult. When you think about like the reanimation of the dead, spoiler, uh, Peter jumps out the window, kills himself, yeah. and then gets reanimated. And then you have uh Or the bodies of Annie or you know, right. Ellen, right? Yes. Right now. Um you know, the appearance of, you know, apparitions. You see that throughout the entire fil- film because, you you know, Annie sees her her mom. Peter sees Charlie at one moment. Uh, Charlie sees this woman in the film who's probably her grandmother being, you know, that ring of fire. And then, of course, you know, def- Defying Physics, which falls into kind of what happens next where you start to see Annie on walls and kind of floating through the air. So that light is actually... so. You're correct. Uh, Payman is Charlie. Okay. All right. But there's certain things that you have to do to be possessed by Payman. Mm. One of the things is the deity of Creek, which is a herb. So if you look at the picture on the fridge of the grandma feeding Charlie, there's yes. some black stuff oh, in there. Oh, <gasps> damn. That's the herb. And then when you see Annie drinking the tea at Joan's house, that's damn. the herb. And here's a hidden thing. When Peter's under the bleacher smoking weed and it looks like he's having a panic attack, yes, he's smoking the herb. And the reason I know that is yeah. that if you look at the frame, the guy that's in the left corner with the ponytail, I 
at the end of the movie where they're in the treehouse, <gasps> that's the guy bending down. Shut no, up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up. So that's one. So taking the herb. studying this movie. You weren't even watching it. You were like taking. I've seen it so many times. Tons yes. of notes. Always Shit. test your drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't smoke Don't just smoke any it. random thing that people give you. Make no, sure it's, it's from laced. a reliable source. Holy God, no, that's crazy. Switch. You're going to get possessed by a fucking okay, demon. Okay, yep. but hang on. Can we talk about the breastfeeding scene just like real no, quick? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's only done in the miniatures, but it's yeah. conveyed. Yes, but like, it's like, yeah, like whenever, exactly. It's it's implied that whenever she's saying like, she wouldn't even let me feed you, mm-hmm. seems seems benign, not anything crazy. Then we see the miniature, grandma leaning in, boob fully out. See, that that ties, doesn't work, that, that, right? tie, that ties in with her, like, grandmother probably was eating the herbs it was feeding <gasps> breast milk. Dude, thank you for t- thank you for connecting it. I was like, how is Homegirl's breast milk somehow giving life to payment? Yeah. Like, thank you for connecting that for me. Yeah. Wow. So when when I'm sorry I'm ignorant, but like when do you stop being able to make breast milk? Like as a elderly woman. I if thought you like have, I thought I menopause no was like a thing that no like would like put an end to that. Or you something. are right. However, there are like psychological conditions where like mm. if you're in a grieving period, like there that your is. body can like make breast milk oh, it's like even a if you're not life. exactly yeah. like even if you're not pregnant. Like even if you're outside of the realm of being pregnant, like hmm. it could happen. Nice. Wow. Or maybe if yeah, if you're under the influence of a particular specific demon who's <laughs> right? asking yeah. you to run their errands. He can errands. make you fruitful and yeah. multiply. Wow. And that's his thing too. Payment is likes to cause trauma mm. because that opens you up and the only thing he needed the key that he needed was them to do the seance in the home right and once he that needed happened, one to be very vulnerable oh, wow. and the most vulnerable range one. Yeah. of that because the light that you see is payment talking through like cult members that probably have died spirits and creatures that have died so that light that's leading and guiding charlie um and peter and annie at certain times is that like those are his acquired souls or acquired demons that he has control over i see yeah because it it also is like i mean it's for one thing like from a just a a technical standpoint it's a fantastic idea because it's such a simple effect yeah but it's such a good like you know we talk about you know like motivated lighting right in the setup for a scene um and obviously this this film is very well made so there's a lot of like very well established and well constructed scenes but this being a uh, a tool for motivated camera movements as well, mm-hmm. where it's like the one you you were talking about, Andy, where uh, Peter is like walking down the hallway of the school, right? Mm-hmm. And it does this thing where it like when it when it passes by things, it completely creates like a, a perimeter mm-hmm. around you know whatever walls and surfaces they're looking at. But then it is able to like motivate the camera to like follow it, mm-hmm. then like down the hallway where it'll then like you know disappear into the doorway of something, mm-hmm. right? Or like when he's in the classroom later and he sees the vision, like the 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 vision of himself, like the specter of himself with a smile. On his, yeah. on his face and like you know the, the flash goes and passes him and then zeroes in on this like cabinet door yeah. yes. um, it's so cool and it's such a yeah. good like what a simple like you don't need like you know fucking cheesecloth or any other like goofy thing it's just yeah. a little a little shimmer yeah um, that does the trick uh, and it's man, it's awesome um, so yeah that, that scene that we were talking about Peter sees himself uh, in the mirror or in the uh, cabinet door of um of, like a science uh, class or something. Yeah, of his of his class, uh, he's getting a lecture on. Um, he's getting another lecture about Greek mythology, um, and the vision of himself uh, motivates him to like you know leave school essentially. Like he gets really freaked out. Um, so Stephen goes and picks him up and brings him home. 
Uh, when they get home, they start noticing a horrible smell. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve goes to Annie's office, and she has uh, destroyed everything. Uh, in the midst of this, he called her, you know, told her that, uh, you know, he, he got a call from Peter, who was in a panic, uh, saying that he was being pursued by some vengeful spirit, which he's not wrong. Back at, back at home, the family begins to notice a terrible smell, and Peter sees a vision of Charlie in his bedroom and is attacked by a uh, magical assailant, right? Um, this is the scene, yeah, where Peter is just, like, lying in bed uh, in his bedroom, and we see the, like, the, the vision of Charlie, and then her head topples forward and turns into a so soccer cool. ball. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of, like, a, yeah, it's kind of goofy, but it was kind of awesome, too. Um, and then he gets attacked from behind by just some, like, un- uh, some arms, yeah. um, which I assume was just, like, I don't know, like, the, the cult members being, like, tele- I don't know, channel in through some yeah. gate or portal or he was just having a it was just some vision that was being uh forced upon him by well it's also a whatever. little foreshadowing because before that scene where annie destroys the entire place mm-hmm. there is a cut of a scene where it is peter's body in a bed and his head is gone yeah yeah the little model of him yeah. uh oh my gosh. yeah is uh is sitting on the bed his little felt self um <laughs> <laughs> um so Annie tries to destroy uh, Charlie's book. Uh, she at this point, it seems like she's beginning to realize that uh, that she she has cre- cursed the family uh, and that this is the source of their problems. Um, so she takes the sketchbook downstairs uh, and tries to toss it in the fire. And this is where we get that scene where she like you know starts getting the the fire on her shoulder and realizes that she is now intrinsically connected to it. Um, she she goes through the business of trying to contact Joan. She goes to her uh, her house, um, but can't find her. Um, meanwhile, Peter's at school and there's a scene, uh, all of these, this happens a couple of times, right? Charlie experiences it with like the lady just smiling and like waving mm-hmm. at her. Um, and it's a very, like, it's a, it's a Halloween thing where it's like I, sitting in the schoolyard and then just seeing somebody from across the street, uh, creeping on you. Uh, and in this instance, it's like going back to, I guess what the, the mythology that we're sort of, uh, going with here that, um, what's it seems like what's happening is joan is attempting to like exercise yeah she's trying to exercise peter from his own body basically (laughs) um to allow payment to to then inhabit it um and then because very soon after this we get the scene of him in the uh the classroom Mm -hmm. uh that is fucking gnarly um where you know the shimmer appears face up dude so do you know about what happened behind the scenes on this one not at all okay all method baby dude so um what I, I thought it was an accident at first, but apparently yeah, Alex told Ari that he's like, hey, I want to actually break my nose for this scene. <gasps> and no! Ari Astor was like, please don't do that. Uh, we would really appreciate it if you did it. Um, but apparently what happened was like, you know, so they have like, as far as props go, they set up his desk in the classroom uh, and it has like a foam topper to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I guess either what Ari didn't know or what, Alex didn't know was that right underneath a foam topper is, you know, a hard, hard surface. surface. It's a hard wooden mm-hmm. surface. So he slams his face, I think, on the second one down. He had a previous injury where he had broken his jaw or dislocated oh, no. it. He dislocates his jaw in yeah. this scene, slamming his face onto the table. Yeah. Um, and so there's some very real, like, oh, shit. <laughs> blood and shit yeah, happening. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Yeah, but his, man, Alex Wolf committing to the yeah. fucking bit, dude. Oh, like, fully. Like, he jumps out of his seat and it starts screaming after that that brief possession. It's uh, it's gruesome. Well, uh, too, the important thing about that scene falls back into payment. So where he is seemingly possessed, he does this. He exactly. lifts his hand <gasps> and points. Right. Oh, shit. And the staff that payment has is a finger holding a staff oh my God. with a finger on it so dude you're that so right <laughs> okay that's so interesting because there's another parallel too to charlie and this is the third parallel well the second parallel third 
like vision of it where his face is also swollen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whenever he's stuck in that position as if he's having an allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And earlier, whenever you were talking about the panic attack that he has, he's saying like over and over again, like I can't breathe. I can't yeah. breathe. And that's like mm-hmm. the allergic reaction that like she was having. And to me, that was his like manifestation of guilt. And so, yeah, your imagery that you just brought into that, that gave me the creeps yeah, a little bit. It was, yeah. I, the, it, it stood out to me because I was like, why is he pointing? Right. Like, what, like almost like something's holding his hand up. Yes. And pointing his finger. And you, you see the imagery of him carrying that staff with the finger. And I was like, oh. Damn, that's crazy. Hey, it's Travis. Uh, we hope you guys are enjoying the episode. And if you guys have any suggestions for movies that you think we should watch or comments about the episodes, please email me at scarysundayscaries at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing back from you guys, and we look forward to it. Thanks. Um, so in the next, uh, so all of the stuff that we've been talking about, right, like the grimoire and everything, this kind of all kind of happens in this part of the movie where Annie is sort of uncovering the secrets and begins to realize like what's what's gone on. Um, she gets back to the house, sort of unboxes all of the, all of her mom's old possessions and finds you know all of the uh, the, the the prayer blankets or the the mats or whatever. Mm-hmm. The one notably that Charlie that with Charlie's name on it has yeah. the symbol of payment Charles. on it. Um, and she uncovers those books, which explain everything that we talked about. Um, and she also uncovers the uh, photo albums which show that her mother and Joan have been buddies for a long time. They go mm-hmm. drinking together, they do some bocce ball, you know, they hang out, they drop some coins, circles, drop some coins. Yeah, yeah. they hit the wind star every now and then. <laughs> um, but this is about when she discovers the dead body of her mom in the attic too. Yeah. Um, she goes upstairs and as soon as they pull that attic door, that attic ladder door down and that ladder falls out, there's a, a, a whole swarm of be- a buzzing flies Flies. yeah um and she goes up there and and finds the dead body of her mom in the corner uh which is tied to uh amityville horror as well we talked about the treehouse and the red eye from the treehouse and then amityville horror is known for like the flies it was like the first thing right yeah i also got like people compared it to Candyman too particularly like with the ant scene Mm -hmm. um or the ants like crawling all over uh charlie's head um yeah, and in this scene too, this reminded me actually of the uh, um, ticking of Deborah Logan too. Mm. Actually, uh, kind of a, a little bit of the same idea. I guess that would have been six years before this came out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the so Steve has picked up Alex or Peter from school, uh, brings him home, and then this is sort of like when the ball gets rolling, right? Um, Annie explains to Steve that she has cursed the family. Kind of comes out, comes clean, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, she shows him the dead body in the attic and explains that they need to burn the sketchbook and that it's going to, she, she fully knows it seems in this moment that it's going to kill her. Um, and that's why she's, she's too scared. She asks him to do it. Um, but he's kind of had none of it. And he's, he's a little over it at this point. And he says, I can't do this with you anymore. Um, there is the scene earlier, you know, talking about the evolution of Steve's character. Like he, in right before uh, all this happens, right, he's in his office when he gets the call about Peter, you know, fucking up his face. Uh, he's writing an email to another psychiatrist saying, I think Annie is in the midst of a full psychiatric break. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like he's about to recommend her for, you know, for therapy or for, you know, for medical assistance. Um, and then he gets that email with the with the photos from the cemetery mm-hmm. showing that, um Ellen's body has been disinterred. Uh, and so he knows that the body's not there. So get, I feel like getting home in this situation and your wife telling you, hey, the dead body of my mom is up in the so, attic. Yeah. Like, And he accuses her. Like, yeah. yeah, he accuses her of, you know, all those nights you said you were going to the movies, you were going out here and, and doing an Ed Gein and digging up your mom's body, which yeah. is like interesting that his mind went there and it would be interesting if like there's another version of this that like in my mind where she like has waking 
you know, or like loses, has lost time and actually does commit these acts like right. off screen or something like under some hypnosis or spell, like in the, in the version, like in the style of a smile or something yes. where it's like she's having visions and, um, or lack of visions and doesn't see what's happening. Um, but I guess we can assume that like the cult members did that and Absolutely. just like yeah. some decided to go stash the body at her house. Uh, they also so, collected tra- uh, Charlie's head. Yeah. Right. While they were at it, yeah. just doing some, uh, just doing some like, like grave robbing. Um, yeah, this is the scene where uh, Peter meets or uh, Steve meets Zen. Uh, she she tries to implore him to toss the sketchbook into the fire. She douses it in lighter fluid. Um, he's over it though. He says he's having none of this, and so she does it herself. She tosses it into the fire, and then immediately Steve bursts into flames. This is a great. Oh boy! Like, it's like a symbolism that he, you know, he's been internalizing everything, right? Yeah. And then it came, it all spilled out, and he just burst into flame. Like that's just a perfect symbol of him, like his him being fed up and just it just all came out and <sighs> yeah an appropriate end yeah um something that we haven't talked about yet is like i feel like particularly in this final third of the movie and in, in the last sequence uh last sequences is where colin stetson's score really sort of like starts to mm-hmm. show itself as or like be the star of the show here um colin stetson is a an avant-garde saxophonist who also did the music for uh the menu mm-hmm. which we uh, talked about in the episode that we did covering that um, with my little brother um, and uh, Colin uh, Ari Aster actually talks about how in preparing and writing for this movie he listened to Colin Stetson's music um, which is very ambient and um, very uh, very spacey um, and the instrumentation for this movie too is is very very out there but man is it effective it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a whole host of like yeah the uh, I can't remember who, which writer said it but they said it sounds like uh, you know a uh, a chorus of woodwinds and uh, humpback whales or something <laughs> uh, and notably Colin Stetson I, I, he put a lot of versions of his own affected voice in there essentially for a lot of these background effects and musical uh, cues but there's this very like triumphant refrain that keep, kind of keeps coming back in whenever whenever the the characters are in close proximity to payment essentially like mm-hmm. as they especially towards the end of the movie here um as that that demon starts to become make itself more present and known it sort of is signaled with this giant fanfare yeah. a very triumphant mm-hmm. uh, chorus of music which actually kind of sounds like the um the music at the end of the menu, which is like the the, the cleansing or the purifying flame, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that Colin Stetson wrote for them all burning themselves alive in the uh, the restaurant. Oh, well, that's payments thing too. Once yeah. he comes to Earth, he is trumpeted in. So yeah, mm. that was a yeah. big. It's cool. Wow. It's appropriate and it's yeah. effective. It's yeah. really really cool. Um, so yeah, once uh, once Steve is out of the picture, this is it's kind <laughs> of a it's kind of a race to the end here. Uh, this is when, like we said. Um, this movie, uh, one writer put this in a really interesting way that this is like a reverse Babadook. Um, this movie is like Babadook spends all of its time for the first two thirds up until the end, sort of weaving a very sort of by the numbers monster or ghost movie where you're like, all right, cool. Like I see what's going on here. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's almost a, it's, it's, it's a genre movie. And then it's, it's very, cliches. they play it on cliches. Yeah. Right. And then it's last third hits you with some of the most emotionally impactful, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, mother, son, and like, you know, dealing with trauma and grief kind of thing, um, that you'll see in a movie. And it's, it's really effective. Um, hereditary is almost like backwards, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, it's a flip uh, reverse of that, where we spent the first 90 minutes of this movie weaving and creating some of the most traumatic stuff that you'll see on screen of a family family going through grief and dealing with their own internal drama in such a way um, that's very, very striking and very, very impactful. 
and then this final third man it leans into the genre stuff yeah, but it yeah. does it hard and does yeah. it right and it's fucking gnarly yeah. um when peter wakes up and he sees like so he wakes up uh and he sees the glowing lights coming from the treehouse again and we we're looking at peter but in the background that's the beauty of the cinematography yeah. in this whole scene right one of the things you say about cinematography light was important in the scene yeah. right this flips it we're lighting it's a hard moonlight coming in it's hitting peter in the back and you're kind of like looking right there but it stays there just long enough where you go wait a minute should i be looking here right and you just kind of look up in that left corner and there's fucking uh, <laughs> yeah. Annie just hanging like out, defying, defying gravity. Yes. One of Payman's uh, thing. Uh, spider mom. Yeah. So quiet. Like, oh, so scary. And then, you know, he makes that turn and you see her floating off through the door. And you're like, okay, what the fuck is going <laughs> on? Nope. Yeah, nope. Nah, uh, that's, uh, nah, that's nah, so nah, nah. good. Yeah. Uh, even on like, I mean, yeah, like, so on rewatch, it's still rewarding. But man, that first time you see this see scene yeah, and yeah. you're sitting there and like you said, your eyes that's the exact course of action that your eyes take and it takes you a second by the time you focus on her and realize that she's there he's already turning around and she's disappeared mm-hmm. uh, and then seeing her skitter off into the darkness yeah. is fucking gross okay I want to talk about her movement really quick because yeah. the first time I saw this movie um, I literally out loud in the theater it was like so quiet you could hear someone clear their throat I out loud in the theater as she swims through the air away. I said, <laughs> what the fuck? Because everything else about this movie is so perfect yeah. that that motion was so cheesy to me. Yeah. I brought that up to a, a friend, though, and he was like, no, no, no. She's not air swimming. She's crawling on the wall. Yeah. Did you interpret that? That's the way that I saw it, okay. too. Yeah. That, okay. It's good. just that it's like it's like noiseless, right? Yes. And it's like, because there is foley of like footsteps here, but the foley is like when Peter's looking at the window as if there's somebody like going towards the yeah. treehouse. Yeah. So it's not like the sound of her running across, yes. the, across the wall. Um, and it is, yeah, like the noiseless way in which she does it, though, I think is like, is what's haunting. Because it's almost like, like when you... We, in other like demon and exorcist movies, right? We usually see like the the first stages of it where it's like the person's getting possessed by a demon and they start spitting out all the stuff. But it's like, this is usually like the late stage version of that where it's like, what would happen if you just kind of like ride this out and see what happens. Right. Mm. And it seems like this is what happens is like, they get spider powers and they run around Uh, the fucking house, like a noose, I don't know, like a skittery little nuisance. And it's kind of awesome. A skittery little nuisance. Yeah. (laughs) Because she does. Yeah. I love that thing. That's a nice nice band name right there. I love it. nuisance. Um, because yeah she just like rolls up. I mean she's like yeah she's hung on a wire up like Tony Collette is just like you know running off and or whatever uh, stunt person is um, but it's good I think it's effective that it's like it's noiseless and yeah. it's just sort of like it's just gross and jarring because it's also out of focus mm-hmm. um, and it, she's only pulled into focus once bef- until like the the end of her um, right because Peter go down, goes downstairs and then his experience in the living room right he's exploring the house trying to figure out what, what the fuck happened where everybody is he notices the piano and the, the whole living room has been Straight overturned room. right but the piano's been knocked over and ripped apart. And so that's where she gets the piano wire from, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <gasps> but you hear it earlier because you hear the, the drop of the piano and it, like they're oh, pulling shit. in the strings. Oh, <sighs> my God. And that's what kind of signifies Peter to kind of go, like, what the fuck is going on right. to go down there? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <sighs> Because yeah. he gets down to that living room and he discovers Old Steve's crusty up. little Oof. jerky body. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's full jerky, baby. Yeah, and he is also decapitated. Also, yeah, yeah. extra crispy. Extra crispy. Um, and while he's taking this in, he's trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. It's a, it's a close oh. up of him, but in the background, <laughs> oh. the old girl's up there and she is chilling. 
Yeah, she's doing her thing like up in the rafters this time. And that that rack focus like switching to her mm-hmm. and then pulling back to him as a one time. And it's like her face is expressionless. Like she's yes. just yes. sitting there waiting for her prey. Waiting to pounce on him. Yeah. But the, the cool thing about that is that we're forced Peter is forced to look around to see old Brock. Smiling right. smiling dick uh. out and everything. <laughs> just chilling, just full swing. And he's Why? Like, I went what the cold fuck? when I saw that in the theater. Uh, I was like, what is going to happen? And then you hear the, uh, and you turn, it cuts back to Colette, just in the corner, running full sprint. Out of nowhere. <laughs> God, she and goes full lineman I mean, at this point. Like Credit to Peter, because he reacted to it well. I don't, like, if somebody hopped out of the corner like that, <laughs> I don't know if I could be like, oh, shit, let me go. I'll be yeah. like, oh, my God. I'm going to have to fight, because <laughs> I cannot outrun. It's still which like, is, yeah. I'll never forget the fucking scene, like the fake out alien abduction, alien scene and no for the first oh, time, yeah. when he decks that little kid in the face. Like, I was exactly. like, yeah, that's how a lot of people yeah. would react yeah. to that situation. Yep. It's just immediate, because it's fight yeah. or flight and yeah. sometimes people don't choose flight nope. uh but yeah he takes off and he he runs away from tony collette and he uh, makes it up to the attic like he runs up to the attic and shuts the door and this is like we were talking about earlier he's screaming at her mommy mommy, mommy please yeah. and the scene of her upside down yeah just like rapidly thump 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 thump, thump baking banging her head against yeah. that attic is some of the because it's it's the inhumanness of yes, it right exactly. mm-hmm. when people get like the i mean it's, this happens a lot in like you know ghosts and possession demon movies and stuff but like this is a, it's just a great example of it where it's like her body for whatever force is in there is just a tool now mm-hmm. right she's just a, a hammer that they're using a battering ram to try to get through to the to the prize there at the end of the tunnel and it's it's scary yeah. um almost as scary i feel like that's almost as scary as like this next part where yeah. she's just like you know he he's found himself in the attic surrounded by candles and there's like the stain on the ground where his grandma's body was before with a little picture of him with the eyes burnt out there um and he looks up and it's ah it's naked people um (laughs) more naked people uh but the i guess before that is the sound of uh you just hear i think the subtitles here say you know flesh tearing or like squelching squelching it's always squelching he doesn't actually he doesn't see the cultists so when he comes up and looks down, you see the picture with his eyes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Originally, um, Aster was gonna. It was a scene where his eyes actually gonna be like removed. Oh, right. But he took that away and decided to kind of keep that. But he looks down at that, and what when he goes up and he walks in to first notice it, that's where we see them in the corner, the cultists, whatever. And you, you should have recognized one of them because it's the same lady that was waving at Charlie. Yeah, she's oh, wow. earlier in the movie. So. He doesn't notice that they're in there because they're the ones that let her in the attic. Right. So he's like taking all what's going on there. And then that's where we hear kitty, 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 Which yeah. if you've seen Audition, kitty, 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 it's a scene where she's amputating someone and she's saying kitty, 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 which means deeper, deeper, deeper. <laughs> but anyway, she's like <laughs> cutting, cutting off her head up there and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's like there's something about like because there's the the first few squelches right, and you're like, fuck, yeah, like man, it's fucked up. you this the idea of like starting slow with that, oh. and like because it sounds like each you know it's like when you, we've seen movies like you know Saw like when uh uh, uh Carrie always you know is cutting off his foot, yeah. and like the first few are the toughest right because mm-hmm. they're the you know the deepest and you're like breaking them, but like so she does that, but then when she starts going like it starts yes. speeding up, that like adrenaline kicks in, yeah. uh, and she's like making eye contact with him like the yeah, whole time. Basically. Like, zoom it's so into her. Yeah. And when they do that zoom in, there's the one like juicy gush of blood yeah. that just yeah, shoots yeah, right yeah. out. Um, 
Yeah, he freaks the fuck out and eats himself out the window. Like, like you like, credited. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, <laughs> yeah more naked people. Like, yeah. it's just too much. Yeah. Too many naked people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we talked about that, and it follows. Yes. Just something. Oh, yeah, just throw a naked man in there somewhere. Yeah, and that is terrifying. It is Nobody wants to see I mean, this is the most white people I've seen naked <laughs> in my entire <laughs> life. Um, yeah, I guess he. So you think he he dies when he, he hits the ground out there? Because when he hits the ground, you see like a dark, like his spirit leave his body. Oh, that dark shadow. Leave. I never caught that. And then you know, uh, uh, payments. You know, yeah, the little shimmer there and, yeah. and lands in center of his chest yeah, to reanimate his body. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then look, kind of one of the more comical moments of the movie when Tony Collette's disembodied just her decapitated head just <laughs> <laughs> like almost like a slide whistle should play like right there. Yeah. She just like slides up. She just, just like slowly glides up into the into the treehouse and what he follows her. What would be a better way though for her to move? Because I thought that too. I was like seeing it, I just like kind of was shaking my head, like, what's going on? Yeah. But, I mean, still effective. It was still horrifying. Yeah. You know? Like, but like, what could have been less cheesy? Like, what motion could have been better? She would have crawled up? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't you know? know if it, like, yeah, the, the the visual of, like, a decapitated body, like, yeah, like, you know, jerking itself up there probably would have been pretty creepy. Yeah. But I think, like, tonally, like, what he's going for at the end of this, like, it is, it just becomes fantastical at the end, mm. right? Yeah, because he's, yeah. play, he's playing with one of Payman's abilities, which is defying physics. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, okay. at that point... I mean, she's been floating around for fucking fifteen minutes now. Right? Yeah. Why not? Clearly, one of her powers. Yeah. 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 And it's. I think it's also too. It's just like I said, with the combination of that, and this is where that score is popping up too. Mm -hmm. Like all those trumpets and like this. This music is is very like. It's like the juxtaposition of what of the events that are occurring on screen and the music. Like it's it's pretty jarring too. Where it is very triumphant, very like soothing music Mm -hmm. almost. And so there's something about that. I think like that's the idea is is pulling. We're we're getting pulled out of the realm of reality and into. Uh, you know the the hyper reality of this cult ritual or whatever because um, he follows the the floating body out into the treehouse and gets up there and then this is the final you know ritual where he goes up there and he finds that there's a mannequin with uh, oh god um, with uh, Charlie's decapitated head on top of it with a paper crown and um, there's a bird in there too uh, and then there's a bunch of other cult members who are all bowing to uh, this mannequin and then as well as the uh, decapitated heads of his grandmother and his mother uh, and Joan kind of explains very quickly you know she's like hey you know hey payman you know we've corrected your female body uh, we found you this this healthy male host you know help him and grant us luxury and wealth and riches and sub you know sub uh, submit all men to our to our will uh, and then that's the end of the movie and then the credit sequence and it, yeah. it's that uh, song uh, what is the song that plays in this uh, the, the Other Side of Things uh, yeah. yeah oh Both Sides Now by Judy Collins that's the only thing I know about the credits is since it's like hereditary so each letter that drops into the next thing is like hereditary so yeah. it's like things being passed on down oh, yeah from shit. generation to generation Whoa. yeah oh, man what an asshole he thought all of this Ooh. through yeah. <laughs> yeah man a great fight like, i i feel satisfied watching it every yeah. time though yeah. like for as much as like i think you know every obviously every one of these movies gets like 
easier and easier to watch with like a couple of rewatches sure. and stuff. Um, but it's this is another one of those. I said this on the uh, one of the other episodes we did talking about The Shining, where watching The Shining, like I can't be scared of it because it's just too beautiful. Yes, yeah, it's Art just house, like baby. yeah, <laughs> it's that thing where it's just like it's just too gorgeous to be scared of yeah. in some ways. And this movie is that way for me now, especially like now that you like yeah, on a couple of rewatches when you're just looking for all the pieces Absolutely. to put right. together, you're just like you just appreciate it yeah. more and more. Um, but there are a couple of those scenes like we talked about before when like performances like Tony Collette's in this movie are just hard not to have an emotional reaction to Um, and I do every time I watch it Um, but as far as the way this movie was received by other people uh, Hereditary was kind of immediately heralded as as expanding the horror genre and contributing to like a great deal uh, in terms of uh, quote unquote elevated horror uh, at the time of its release Um, in the 2018 uh, Roger Ebert interview or the New Yorker or the New York Times all reviewers tended to pretty much be to be pretty excited about um, the new horror picture lauding its uh, its technical aspects as well as the uh, the depth of emotional intensity um, and uh, 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 drama that it's explored in its plot. Um, there's something about uh, so give give a little picture of the numbers here real quick uh, talking about this movie. So the budget for Hereditary was ten million dollars, right? Um, of um, uh, a24 productions that's that's nothing to scoff at uh they've done movies for less and for slightly more um but as far as what this movie would go on to make it's pretty fucking stellar so the weekend of june 18th 2018 whenever uh, june 8th 2018 whenever this movie comes out um the movies that this that hereditary is competing with at the box office are fucking wild and the fact that this movie ended up making so much money is kind of bonkers as well um so what comes in first place at the box office the weekend that hereditary opens uh it's the same weekend that oceans eight actually opens as well Um, the all female cast yeah so like the the requel kind of thing right where uh yeah it's the all female cast uh which was also in its opening weekend like i said it grossed uh 41 million 41 million dollars that weekend and took the number one spot uh hereditary actually comes in second place um at the box office that weekend um so in its opening weekend uh it would make 13.6 million dollars uh of the eventual 82 million dollars that this would make at the box office so hereditary makes you know eight times its budget back it's a nice bag oh Yeah. yeah gross worldwide um it would be at the time up until this year actually it was the most successful a24 production nice. um it was replaced only by everything everywhere all, all at once oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. uh which would make a hundred million dollars over a hundred million dollars at the if box only office. we could speak of that movie uh, i know <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're not a, yeah we'll, we'll we'll start doing i don't know we'll we'll, we'll find a way um <laughs> sci-fi yeah right uh so just the rest of the box office is filled out in third place uh this is an interesting time uh solo a star wars story is in its third week and it's uh uh, having grossed 177 million dollars by the end of that weekend um, total in fourth place, uh, another Disney Marvel property, Deadpool Two, is in its fourth week, uh, having grossed 300 million by the end of that weekend. And finally, in fifth place, still um, is Avengers: Infinity War, Jesus, which was man. in its seventh week. Uh, and by the end of the weekend that Hereditary opened, it had grossed 655 million dollars. So, given that this was literally one of the most successful eras for the Disney Marvel properties, as well as some other really big contenders, um, it's kind of wild that there was still room for a genre film like Hereditary to come. Mm, and stack up that bread which it did um so like I said, by the end of its wide release, Hereditary would have grossed over $80 million on a budget of just $10 million. Um, what I think is interesting, like I said, is this attitude towards Hereditary at the time of its release um, and the speculation about 
um, how it would eventually perform at the box office because at the time they didn't know how well it would do, um, especially when uh, compared to other art house films, which it was being compared to um, in articles such as The New Yorker, which uh, whose review of Hereditary points out um, points this out and specifically compares it to uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch, which had made $40 million world- worldwide um, on just a $4 million budget. Um, this conversation here is... Uh, the conversation here is the relative ability of what we uh, what are perceived as you know the, these higher brow elevated um, movies which may be less accessible to the general audience um, and whether or not their ability to succeed financially will spell doom or m- pave the way for other movies of their type um, hereditary absolutely demolishes expectations in this regard and it makes twice as much money as the witch and eight times its own budget um, this isn't a fluke either uh, as far as domestic and worldwide box office goes Ari asked has created two of the most successful films A24 ever produced um, and two of the three films uh, in the uh, three horror films in the top 10 most successful A24 movies Um, and this is something that was really interesting to me because I I wasn't sure whether where this fell um, like on the bracket of all of the A24 ones but between Midsommar and Hereditary Midsommar coming in at uh, the number six spot of the most successful A24 movies just right behind The Witch uh, and Hereditary which still holds number two after being beaten out by everything everywhere all at once Mm. three of those top 10 A24 movies are horror movies and two of them were made by Ari Aster and they're the two first movies he ever fucking made what's the third one uh the witch uh which is yeah yeah yeah. um and the only movie that in theory performed higher as far as the return on its investment goes than hereditary um would be uh moonlight from 2016 Mm. which made 65 million dollars on just a 1.5 million dollar budget wow um which was the it's the fourth most successful a24 movie to date barry jenkins Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's great, man. What a great fucking years for movies too, though, man. Absolutely. Like Jesus Christ. Um, so this is essentially the end of our uh, series, our third series, uh, in which we covered psychological horror. Um, we'll be capping off this series with a horror comedy next week to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, but I do briefly want to return to the idea that we proposed earlier on in this run of episodes um, to hear what you guys have to say about um, the nature of quote unquote elevated horror, right? Um, so the comparisons of Ari Aster's work uh, to Jordan Peele's and Robert Eggers was inescapable. It was inevitable, um, particularly in discussion of um, uh, financial metrics like the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in those specific discussions, though, that I think the true nature of this phenomenon of elevated horror um, and what it means for the general audience is actually kind of like fleshed out. Um, in the New Yorker articles I was uh, pulling information from, um, there's this discussion of... Um, art house films versus uh, multiplex box office movies, right? And sort of the perceived um, kind of competition between those. Um, I think the the critic in this situation was hitting at the key issue between these uh, these or the key issues these types of movies and the implications of uh, the horror genre uh, overall. There's this sort of constant push and pull that's been going on um, on in this specific genre for like well over fifty years, where there's this battle between films that are looked at as true genre movies and films that um, are put sort of in like false opposition to them as being more leaning into drama or art house. Um, we see it happening with movies like Hereditary and the Witch and, um, you know, Midsommar, uh, any movies, you know, made by uh, Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers or Ari Aster or even the Daniels to this point where you have these movies that are perceived as being art house movies that are maybe for horror fans leaning a little bit too much into expectations or desires of a general audience or an art house audience Mm -hmm. and not being fun enough or not being true horror movies. I mean, this goes all the way back to like Silence of the Lambs, right? In like, you know, the nineties where it's like, is it truly a horror movie? And it's like, and, and does it do enough to like to be a horror movie? And I think Hereditary is 
walks that line perfectly here. Mm. And I think it's evidence that like there are ways to make these movies um, that are beautiful and thoughtful and uh, still really successful while still being like genre movies. Right. Um, which I think is what the question of like what the quote unquote, like elevated horror thing is all about. Um, like, like we talked about when we were watching Nope, it's like these filmmakers are doing something pushing the limits of what this genre is. And I think that's what makes them like, what's why the, where the title of elevated horror. Yeah. Came I mean, from. they're creating their own lane, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, I feel like the, the term elevated horror is kind of just like lazy. Yeah. It's like, oh, horror, this horror film, whatever, has a story to it. It has drama in it. Like, that's what you want. I mean, Fair enough. that yeah. connection that you want to have with people, that, that makes the stakes even worse. You know, if I'm watching, I hate to do this, Terrifier. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm like, I'm not connected to this person. Yeah. If they die, I'm like, whatever, you know. Right. But like what, you know, Jordan, you know, even with like Korean cinema, like what they're doing and building these characters and building this, this framework of that us normal people can connect with and put ourselves in that situation. One of the greatest films to me of all time is Get Out. Yeah. yeah. I put myself, I, I grew up in South Georgia mm. and, you know, at times I, you know, I had a white girlfriend and I was put in situations like that and I was able to connect with that. Yeah. Now, if we would have jumped off and put it, you know, a uh, black guy goes to this house and then automatically, you know, he's, thrown to the wolves all right off the jump and there's no, no connection or anything. The people right. under the stairs. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't feel anything. I'll be like, yeah. oh, you know, whatever. But like building that character, building that drama, building that connection that uh, the audience should have with that character and the audience member being able to look and be like, I see myself as that person. Oh, I see this mm-hmm. happening and understanding those things. It's not elevated horror. It's right. still in the horror lane. It's just, there's more to it than just pure entertainment and, separating yourself from gore porn or yeah. anything like that, you know, and, you know, it, there's a lane for each type of genre of horror, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's psychological and all the it's, it's perfect lanes, but like this, this people looking at it being elevated or art house and stuff like that. It's just, to me, it's just fucking lazy. And it's yeah. just like, no, it's a story. You're, you're telling right. a story. You're telling a story. And this I feel is what more a good movie looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if, for, if you want people to respect your genre and right. what you're doing, you have to, Give it more. You yes. got to give it more meat. And then it's like, you know, it can't just be purely for for a time that stuff works. Yeah. All that gore porn and like, you know, all it works one, once or twice. Then then you get Jeeper Creeper, uh, Creepers. Uh, what's the new one called? No. There's another one? Yes. No. It is quit God it. awful. <laughs> I'm sure oh, it no. is. Yeah. No one asked for that. And I'm not, I'm talking for production quality. Yeah. It is God awful. Oh my God. The story's bad too. But yeah, I mean, you get these sequels that have no no meat to it and it's just like yeah especially the legacy legacy franchise ones that are like kind of cynical right yeah. where it's like all right you're you know it's a clear cash in um and like i said one, something that's interesting to me though and like wh- one thing that i'll like kind of argue on on behalf of like because what i've been trying to figure out is like what is uh because there's there is some like irony to using like where people have like in, infuse a little bit of irony when they use the term elevated horror and i think it comes from people who have been lifelong fans of the genre seeing not even just in modern times but throughout the past you know 50 years or so seeing people sort of putting some films on a pedestal versus others within the horror genre Mm -hmm. as um or filmmakers that are attempting to make movies like you know get out or uh, hereditary as trying to sort of like legitimize 
what they think is a perfectly fine thing. Like making like being like, all right, you don't think that making just like a straightforward horror movie is good enough for like Oscar, you know, awards or contention or whatever. So you're trying to like legitimize the genre by by infusing it with all these other things and it, it should be just fine the way it is. And I think that like the answer to that is being like look at a film like Hereditary that is using these classic like for all it, it doesn't it, that is achieved in this movie. There are classic horror tropes that are thrown in there at the end that are that are sprinkled throughout this movie as well um, that truly make it a horror movie that it, it, it's just as um, it, it can't be in some ways and silly as some of our favorite terrible horror movies like because I think that is sort of the um, the uh, the uh, the indignity or the uh, the indignation that um, maybe the 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 ethos or the the zeitgeist of the genre has at large which is that like are you saying that like our campy like we we it's cool to like you know to enjoy like some of the the fun and crappy like horror movies which is definitely a lane for that but i think something that we've learned or that i've learned a lot as, as i've like learned a lot more about horror movies is that the, what what makes it such a fun genre is that it's so receptive to mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. these different you know movies that fall on the spectrum in such different ways, whether you're making a hereditary or a nope, or you're making evil dead Two or army of darkness, right? Yeah, there's a it's lane like, for everything yeah. Yeah, within the genre. Yeah. And it's, it's the unifying factor among all these is, is creating a spectacle and shocking and you know, your audience. Yeah. Um, and so it's funny, like, especially in this run of episodes, as we've like watched the movies where we're like, is it horror? Uh, I think there's something about that where it's like, when you look at things through a horror lens, um, especially when you watch a movie like Hereditary and what you're using the horrific, like the horror elements, the genre elements of it for are to enhance mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. add some spice to something that is already an interesting story. Um, it doesn't make it a bad story and it doesn't make the genre worse right. by making this movie into a horror movie. Yeah. Um, it benefits both things. It's it, it's a it's a it's a multiplication by addition. It's, you know, yeah, in, it's in the thing of, you know, I think for so long horror was i mean especially like in the 50s it was you know a thing a tool where you know kids loved it because it was like parents were like don't do it yeah the 60s became a little bit more smart 70s as well 80 kind of fall back into directed directed you know vhs kind of thing and it became like a subculture kind of deal right and the thing about subcultures when they become like modernized and people kind of start falling into it you're gonna have those people are like you're taking away something. Yeah, there's always going to be some gatekeeping there, mm-hmm. right? Which is part of any like culture or community. I so guess, I think that's kind of the big thing to it, because yeah. I mean, what we're getting out of these horror films nowadays is like, I mean, it's if anything, it's drawing more people to horror films, you know, yeah. right. and to experience those different types of genre within horror. So I mean, um, I guess I mean, and that's my perspective. Like, I think it's only good. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Is yeah. like you're not you're not bringing the you're not like diluting the genre right. by like making these these movies. Like, you're just allowing more people into it, which I think is is awesome. And the I guys that, that are making this these movies, I mean, Ari Aster is a fucking cinephile and he loves horror films. Mm. Yeah, you know, so it's yeah. not out of disrespect and he's not cashing in. Is something he loves. Same thing with Eggers, and yeah. and those guys don't want fewer people to exactly. see their movies. Uh, exactly. <laughs> like, so I don't know. At the end of the day, I think yeah, I I was really interested in this topic, and like, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll return to it as we cover other movies and stuff. But it was something that I was interested in for this run of episodes, and uh, the next movie we watch, I think, will definitely embody that as well. Um, but before we get to that, uh, have you guys seen anything lately that you loved or you hated? Uh, there's a couple I know that we watched that <laughs> I'm excited for you to talk about. Uh, you want to go first? Uh, yeah. I- 
uh, Travis and I just watched Skidamarink on Friday. Have you heard of that movie? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So here's how, here's my in- introduction to this movie, right? This is what I thought this fucking thing was going to be about versus what it was, right? So I'm on, I'm chronically on TikTok. I stay on TikTok. And so like horror talk was like really hyping this movie up. That's where, it, yeah, the you internet know? fad yeah, of it all, was yeah. a big thing. Yes. And so it was like, okay, like I heard various creators talking about like, kids locked in the house because the doors and the windows disappear and like they use the tv for comfort and like the ambiance of the lighting and the the angles of the camera are intentionally true yeah like literally (laughs) so that is what i was prepared for right i was like okay yeah 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 Uh, this like tertiary sort of like visual where we're not really looking at what's going on it's really disorienting but it I, the first 10 minutes of the movie, I was mad. Yeah. Like, I was watching it, and I was like, oh, this is just a gimmick, dude. Like, d- does the story, like, does the plot justify, like, the craft? Yeah. And could we call it that? You know? Or like Lack thereof. It was yeah. like, right, it was like an experiment. It was like, can we make yeah. a movie if we do this? Like, that's what this felt like. But anyways, after the first 10 minutes, I was like, okay, 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 okay. I'm, I'm on the same page with you. This is the movie I'm watching. Here I go. And then, like... From that 10 minutes on, for the next 30 minutes, it was a cohesive, good story. And the rest of it is long-winded mess. Because that's the thing. You still have to sit through 60 more minutes of it after that. Ooh, it's too much. This movie is an hour and 40 minutes long. Here's what I liked about it. I immediately picked up that this was like like an allegory. Like, it was more than a metaphor because the whole story, like, aided this, right? was that this was about neglect, childhood neglect, and childhood abuse. And now my my line of work is, like, I work for a domestic violence agency, so I also saw, like, some hints of maybe, like, children witnessing domestic violence, like, between their parents. Um, because, like, the mom and the dad, when they do appear, are, like, never in the same room, right. you know? Anyway, and then there's also, like, things are happening upstairs. They're downstairs trying to, like distract themselves from what's going on in the house and like um just things are slowly disappearing like even the toilets disappear yeah i don't know if that's a spoiler to say that the toilet okay i think we're helping people like because that's the thing is like it damn Travis, he's like fuck this movie yeah no but for real though yeah so i watched it like so when when it was making the rounds on the internet right i remember in our group text like I think Tyler was the first one that like sent us the TikTok about it. And so I was like, cool. So I like looked it up and I found like a bootleg stream of it to watch. And I sent the link to the group and like, I watched it on my laptop, I think at like the end of November or something when it was like first on the internet. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe I don't have the attention span for this. Like it's, it's got really cool ideas. Like you said, the premise is really cool. And the point of the experimental photography is to capture the idea of what it's like to have a nightmare as a child. Mm. Right. Um, when the entire world around you is huge and everything seems big, the corner of a room can seem really scary. And like, it's those lasting images that stick with you, even as an adult, when you have like memories of your childhood home and nightmares or something. And I think that it, it, its goal was to capture that really well. Having said it's, yeah, the, the, the technical failure, like the, just, it's just, too much of a of a of a chore to watch it was too too much labor and it didn't need like uh, it had some cool ideas the scene in the room with the parents is cool um it's a really cool i like the idea of you know like a a demon or a specter coming in and like haunting them or or threatening them but it doesn't need to be 140 an hour minute long it could be this could be a good like um maybe a good like 20 15 20 minute short 
Um, but like beyond that, I, yeah, nothing. It's, it's too long. Um, it's yeah. I, I gave it like what a two out of five. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think getting like eating an edible and like this is a movie that like if you want to if you want to do the thing where you're sitting on your computer like 3 a.m. like maybe like really wanting to do like the research as if you're a crack investigator and stare at every frame fine like it, it could be like it's a it's I feel a, like that was a dig towards me. Dang! <laughs> no, 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 no. But in a, in a appreciate a dumb yeah, way, not in a good I appreciate way. You. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's it is what it is. But yeah, I didn't enjoy it either. Yeah, I and I wanted to so bad. I know. I really wanted. I went to into like that theater. It. I was like, maybe it'll be better on yes. a big screen, and I was wrong. And then the day immediately after, today is Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday, yes. Saturday, I saw Megan with my nephew. Yes. How was that? Okay, here we go. So again, chronically on TikTok. And so Megan had like emerged as this queer icon, yeah. like her little dancing, like in the <laughs> hallway. Like yeah. people put like runway music and shit over it. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And I like hyped it up to my nephew like that. I was like, look at this trailer, gay icon. And he was like in, you know, like, let's go. Um, it wasn't gay icon at all. Here's the thing. It wasn't even kitschy. I enjoyed it. Without any irony at all. It's awesome. <laughs> I, I loved it. I'm yeah. on the fence. I was on the fence because, you know, I Juan's previous, uh, what was it called? Malignant. 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 Yes. I was yeah, with cheese. It had some yeah. cheese. I wasn't there. I mean, I, I understand like Jalalo and all that stuff and mm-hmm. what they were doing, but I was like, ah, it's not my, it's not my bag. I mean, this is the man that like Insidious 1 and 2, which were right. amazing. Like Conjuring. The potential. Yeah. So I was just like, ah. you know, I understand he's kind of like stepping away from those things and kind of doing more uh, on the nose kind of horror. Um, so I'll, I've been on the fence. But every person I've talked to is like, yo, you got to go see it. I'm like, all right. And like his obsession, too, with dolls. I mean. Yeah. Dead, right. dead, that is a thing, dead too. Silence, between Annabelle or dead like. Dead Silence yeah. and Annabelle. And, yeah. And that same kind of look, too. Like, yeah. like glassy eyes. He really likes that. You're it's right. scary. I didn't draw yeah. that connection. I liked Megan a lot for just being completely honest about what it is. Like, you're right. So it's it's James Wan, but it's also Akila Cooper, who's yeah. the writer on yeah, Malignant. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is, you know, written by her as well. And I think that's the thing is like, what I like about this movie and what I was telling people is like, it's not a joke. Like those early reviews that came out that were saying that it was like a really good movie. Like that's, it seemed like a joke at first, but you watch it and it's like, this movie has the feeling of a like a Christopher Columbus script from like the 1980s or 90s to me in that really? it, follow me here in <laughs> that it like small soldiers or like Goonies or like it follows like movie logic like the way okay. the characters behave in this movie is it's not being held to some kind of like hyper realistic standard of like all right this is not how people will behave or like you know because that's not what this movie is trying to be and it's very upfront about that gotcha. and so the movie logic decisions that happen in this movie and the general arc of it i think are pleasing to me and that it leads it leans into that and doesn't try to be anything but that all right travis i'll check it out man yeah. Jeez. that's why it succeeds for me but yeah. i don't know you see anything lately i mean I mean, I've, I've recycled a lot of stuff in the last time I've been here. Um, I went to the theater where I was the only person to go see Nanny. Oh, nice. Uh, Nikki Atu Jutsu's film, uh, Folk Horror, uh, African uh, Diaspora. Uh, I enjoyed that film. It was, I mean, it was a gorgeous film. Uh, cinematographer Rena Yang did an amazing job. Uh, great story. Um, I think I liked how it, it brought me into the world of being like, was African in like their lore, but I would say like the third act was madly rushed. But I understand that like there's probably like production stuff, but it's such a quick punch in the face. You're like, oh my god, like what? Whoa, you know? 
Um, I think the only thing I'm really hyped on is The Last of Us tonight. I know. As soon as we get done recording, we're about to, we're all about to go watch that. Yeah. <laughs> the Last of Us. I've been waiting for this for ten years now. It it's, came out in 2013. The video game is probably one wow. of the best stories in the video game or story period. Are you are you uh, like fresh to The Last of Us? You know anything about this? About I, what's going on here? Only a little bit, like. And so I'll say no. We're pre yeah, I love that I'll we're pre recommending no. Last yeah, of yeah, Us because yeah, yeah. we're just gonna be glad. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I, I don't even know what to say to you because I I always say, hey, just go on YouTube and just watch like the movie version of The Last of Us, the video game, and I guarantee you within the first twenty minutes you're gonna be like hooked. Like absolutely. Also, okay. talking about queer icons, like yeah, there's yes. a, yeah, so <laughs> there's yeah the the premise of this of it's a zombie apocalypse story, right? It started out as a video game that like uh, Jamari said it came out in 2013. Um, you follow Joel and Ellie, who are two stragglers, survivors of this zombie apocalypse, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and there's a disease who Ellie is one of, immune to that turns people into zombies. He's simplifying the zombie aspect of it. It's corseps. It's basically I don't know if you ever. It's a story. I mean, not a story, but it's an actual plant that like infects like ants. Oh and yes, it grow- yes, yes, the fungus. Yes. So yes. this this is applied. You know to more humans. than you think you do. Yeah. <laughs> it applies to humans. So Word. these things are, you know, they have different stages. They have runners. They have stalkers, clickers, bloaters, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Yeah. Yikes. And although the so talking about zombies are. I'll, I'll go ahead and say now our next mini series. So we've been doing uh, like 10, 12 episode series. Uh, what I thought would be fun for our next run of episodes is we're going to do a zombie mini series. So we're going to do four Aww. episodes on zombie movies. If you um, do Night of the Living Dead with that black icon, you better call me. It might be coming up. Uh, uh. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be getting into a zombie series. And what's going to be fun about talking about that is the origin George Romero of zombie movies and sort of how the culture around that has exploded, right? It's almost like a it's its own genre now, out even outside of horror, where yeah. we have you know The Walking Dead. Um, so this lore is established. What The Last of Us does, and what I'm so excited to see what Craig Mazin, the showrunner and and script and screenplay a screenwriter does, um, yeah, creator of Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, the story within The Last of Us for a fucking video game is one of the most like like talk about we just watched hereditary one of the most emotionally impactful storylines oh, yeah. i've ever wow. seen especially put to a fucking video game so i mean i was ugly man crying yeah when i was playing it <laughs> the first one just ugly cry just you ugly, know just... that's valid enough because it deals with like human problems in the way that like a post-apocalyptic world like really should be dealt with like things get gnarly and they get in like you get so invested in those characters especially from a video game like it was one of the first experiences i ever had of like it's cause, because it's a video game, you are that character. And not just for two hours of a feature, for mm. 30 hours of playing this fucking game. The best and opening so, and best ending God ever. Wow. And, this, and then the second game came out a few years ago as well. And it expands on the story. Uh, and just, man, it it will bigger divide it'll on hurt that one, you. Though. Bigger divide on that one, though. Yeah, I guess people, yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah. I loved every it was, aspect yeah, of it. It was fucking fantastic. Yes. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're pre-recommending The yeah. Last of Us because we're super <laughs> excited about it. Um, but yeah, thanks for hanging out with me, guys. So yeah. we, we watched Hereditary this week. Um, next next week, we're watching the last movie for our uh, psychological horror series. Uh, it's a quote-unquote kind of a horror comedy. It's We're going to be watching, do you know what it is? I think I told you about it before Shaun already. Shaun of the Dead. I, I'm, I don't it's know not what Shaun it is. of the Dead. 
Huh? It's uh, Willy's Wonderland. Uh, no, you did not talk to me uh, about that. I might have yeah. texted it to you. I thought so. Mm-mm. But we're going to be doing Willy's, Willy's Wonderland for next week, uh, which will be the cap on our, our third series of episodes. And then after that, we're going to be diving into our uh, zombie mini series. Oh, I jumped, I jumped ahead. I got you. Oh, you're fine. No, I don't care because <laughs> I wanted to use that anyway. And like the uh, horror comedy is always a kind of a palate cleanser anyway. Um, but yeah, if you want to follow this podcast, it has an Instagram page at scariestsundayscaries.com. You can go on there and uh, see us interact with people and talk about and post fun stuff about you know horror movies and other things within the industry. Um, we also have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash scary Sunday scaries, uh, you can support the podcast and uh, join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me um, and also get early access to episodes and fun little random clips that I pull out of episodes. Um, we are g- going to be Do starting it. a discord soon. Uh, we have a discord actually, but we'll be inviting people into it soon to just talk, hang out and talk with us. Uh, if you'd like to email me with that, uh, to get access to that or with other questions or recommendations for episodes, email scary Sunday scaries at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at Trav the guy on Instagram. If you want to follow Jamario, he is. It's me underscore Mario. I T Z M E underscore Mario. And if you want to follow Andy, they are. Modus underscore operandi. So it's like operandi with two E's after it. Awesome. Yeah, you're going to have to send me a friend thing on that. I will. I'm not going to remember that. That's okay. Like modus operandi, like a particular thing. You know? (laughs) I'm glad that you came up with a really good play on words. I'm going to be real with you. My old boss came up with it, and I was like, that is genius, (laughs) and I am taking it. You're like stolen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but thanks again for hanging out with me this week, guys. Yeah. I'm really glad that you guys got to join me for this episode because it's really fun talking to both of you at the same time. Definitely cool. pumped to have learned so much about like <laughs> literally my number two favorite movie in the world. Wow. Oh, what an experience. Awesome. Yes. Cool. And uh, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoy this and uh, join us next week for Willie's Wonderland. Have a good week, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Sunday Scaries.